Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. What is the, what is the dictatorship of the they? Help us understand, <laughs> help us understand what that means. Okay, and why it's important. Before I say, so the this is going. I mean, obviously, I'm German, and this is going to be um, the brutish English for most people. Then what they're about to hear, uh, and it's not just um, because of my shortcomings, but also because I will have to try to translate Heidegger. As I, I mean, I I use sort of standard translations, but many of them are not good enough, um, and the the they is one of these examples that where where the English language just cannot you cannot translate right the, the the german vernacular into english which by the way maybe this will come back to us when we speak about technology later on is that many you know how we operate in the world now where we just think that we can easily translate any language or transfer any meaning of any language to any other language is not that easily possible the they or das man is one of these examples now that's heidegger uses this um uh, talks about this in being in time and sign on to Zeit. And um, before I say anything about the they or das man, I should say maybe that sign on Zeit looks at Dasein, right? Which uh, literally means existence. And that this kind of, uh, the, the, what Heidegger does here is he, he be, always begins with the everyday. He looks at tool use and he uses a hammer and then he comes up with, with these notions of ready to hand and present at hand. Um, and he realizes that th this is how you have to begin. You begin with the ontic, so-called, and then you sort of almost leap into the ontological and show that there are, there are non-visible phenomena at work that make the world meaningful. And death is the most important of these phenomena, by the way. Now, in... In terms of the they, Heidegger asks not, he doesn't ask a metaphysical question. So he doesn't ask, what's the human being? Oh, the human being is a rational animal, yada, yada. And he asks, who is the human being? That's the question. So it's a very different question. You see, it's already directing, it's, it has a completely different direction. So it's non-representational. If you say, who are you? That's, you cannot, you can list something, but it would be very strange to do that. Um, so when he asks, who is Dasein in the everyday, Dasein is zunächst, so at first, or always already, the das man. So we are always already inauthentic. That, that's, not, um, that's not something that's you know, negative in, in the ordinary sense. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a positive phenomenon, as he says. It's, it's who we are. It's who we are in our everyday dealings is das man. And in order to make sense of that, or the they, Right, to, to you read, one reads what everybody reads, and uh, one does as everybody does, and we we think as everyone else thinks. Uh, this fight against how the public works, which is why it's very uh, very skeptical about the media, etc. 
Um, but this is not external to us. So when he says the dictatorship of the day, it's not, not some, some entity somewhere that tells us what to do, but it, it's us. It's, it's, an, it's an existential. It's, it's one of our structures. It's who we are. And now the they or, or uh, das man, I probably have to explain the German first, is that in German you can actually say very strange uh, things. You can say, for example, so if, if, I, if I was very sad, I could say man is sehr traurig. So I don't need to say ich bin sehr traurig which is I am very sad, I could say one is very sad, which, of course, you know, in English is a posh way of, of talking about yourself. But you can sort of, you can uh, abstract from yourself by, by saying man ist sehr traurig. You, you, can, you can point away from yourself and, and, and grammatically speaking, man is a passive uh, structure. So it's an active passive. It's actually something that's done to you but it, it sounds active. Um, so this is how Germans speak. And if you've ever spent time in Germany or you start watching German films or something, you, you can notice that, uh, that das man is, is extremely prevalent. Uh, and it's prevalent where, where it really shouldn't be because there is no generality. It's actually something that, that talks about us. But Heidegger takes this, you know, as to formally, so das man, that's an invention. He calls it das man, right? Because man is just, a, it's not capitalized actually. And, and that, to him, formally indicates something that's going on, you could say, beneath. Um, and that is that what's at work, always already at first, is the they, which then structures everything around it. So the being with others is always already structured by this, the, the, that existential. Right. And that's why he speaks of a dictatorship, because it's dictating us. Or we are in a certain very strange way of uh, of taking ourselves in speaking on in you know, unlike Heidegger, uh, taking ourselves not seriously, um, not not being fully pushed into your own most possibilities of, 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 of authentic being. And we're always already inauthentic. Right, and, and the strange world we live in now is, of course, that the big corporate, big corporations, and, and almost everything talks about be yourself, find yourself, be more than you expected, etc. You, you can sign up with Price Waterhouse Coopers and, and be more than you expected, right? Uh, so it uses that language of authenticity. Um, it uses that language of 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 living up to who you could be. Which is very strange that this is how it's turned out, but that's the power of das man, I guess. Right? Now, why uh, is that strange? Why is that strange? Because it, I think that when you think about the, the, that's maybe a bit of a historiographical point, though. But when you think about when this is written, this is written in, in, the, in the 20s. So you, it's after the death of God. Right? This is, so for Heidegger, this is very real. It's a very nihilistic age. Um, and it is about why is the question of being coming up again? And, and it's the question for the meaning of being. So obviously, Heidegger responds to nihilism. And we will get back to, to why he talks about response so much uh, in the history of being. It's all about responding and how we respond. And it's very important that, you know, that so, so the way we have responded, you could say, to, to that to that very strange historical situation that we're in with, with God is dead, right? The way we have responded is that 
oh, all of a sudden, I, I we, we need to take our authentic possibilities of, of, of existence very seriously. But, but that's been sort of, you could almost say, subsumed or consumed or, or, or devoured almost by, you know, if you like, capital. So it uses that language. It right. it, it, it takes it that, that, that because it's so highly adaptive. It, it can just right, right, right. It, it, so, it, it works with that. Um, so and it, it it makes it even emptier. It's it's by of course, but but this is how language is so dangerous. Is because you know, as Heidegger quotes uh, Hölderlin quite often that language is the most dangerous good given to mortals, <laughs> given to us. Why? Because language language can point to something that really is or something that that is by not being but that's privative so, so it's there but it's just a seeming and, and we're right back in the cave obviously now right i mean this is the oldest problem of of thinking is is this problem of what okay, is okay. oh real quick can you turn your volume down because i think my voice is getting some feedback on your end so if you just move your mic away from the outcoming audio on your computer or turn your audio down. Yeah, like, yes, no. um, so the Dasman, the they, yeah. it's this kind of default state that human beings tend to find themselves in. It's a state of alienation, a state uh, where their possibilities for autonomous creative thinking or action are basically captured by a kind of generic, bland dictatorship of just mass human inertia or something like this. Yeah, but, but it's us, right? It's not something else. It's right. there isn't. There's no central organ somewhere that that dictates that to us. It's just it, it's it's in us. It's who we are. It's one of our structures. And I mean, if you want to step, want to take a step further, that that's inauthentic. It's it's always already sort of running away from itself. So, okay. Here's my next question then. Yeah. What is then authenticity and how do we get it? Well, so you don't get it, right? Because okay. it's not the state and it's not a thing. Okay. Uh, it's, it's itself. I mean, if you want to go a bit beyond Heidegger, you said Eigentlichkeit, the German is Eigentlichkeit and the Greek of the, the, the English comes from the Greek authos, which means yourself. But in German, there's a sense of eigen, which means ownership, owning, right? So be yourself, become who you are, or be yourself and own it. I mean, that, that's one of the first steps. But the way you you could say with Heidegger, um, and so you never reach full authenticity, because that would mean to speak in some other uh, regard about Heidegger's philosophy is you, you cannot have full disclosure of anything. If, if whenever there is presence, concealing or self-concealment is already at work. There cannot be nothing very, you see that book, you don't see the other side of that book, which is not a very good example, but it makes it, you know, it, it shows something to, to someone who's not maybe too familiar with it yet. What happens with all, if you reach authenticity, you don't, there's no reaching it. There's no state of inauthentic and authentic. There is there is a tension between the two that are always already simultaneous. And that once you are authentic, say you will always remain. You can only be authentic insofar as you are inauthentic. 
there's always that tension. But freedom, as it were, happens precisely in that tension by resting, by resting yourself and owning it from inauthenticity all the time. And that happens most radically by pushing forward, running forth towards death. And what does that mean, right? Now, that doesn't mean that you you become, you know, morbid, uh, morbid in any way or, or concerned uh, with your mortality uh, in, in a way that, um, you know, you could think of as clinically depressed or anything. It's you, death is the utmost limit of your existence. But as such, for Heidegger, it's already now. It determines who you are. So he thinks it in a Greek sense. He's, the Greeks think of limit as peras, which is where something begins and not ends. It's where something comes into its own and is free to be itself. But we, we've externalized death, right? Death is an event that occurs. And it, it, I, if I die, I mean, it might be 40, 50 years from now, but I don't have to worry about it. For Heidegger, death in this regard is now. We are always already structurally directed towards it anyways. So what you have to do is to fully sort of pull that into your existence now. And, and that, he says, will, will almost immediately eradicate any inauthentic, inauthentic possibility of fashion of the day immediately. It'll make, it'll make it completely... Nothing is important anymore that you think, yeah, I need to write a paper and get published, <laughs> in your case, or I need to... Uh, uh, or the case of an academic, where I need to I don't know, climb up the corporate ladder, yada, yada. Uh, none of that is, or the, in this country, it's very important to get on the housing ladder, as you might have heard in the UK, right? Um, none of that is important all of a sudden. Because how is that an authentic possibility of existence? You're pushing into it, and it, it doesn't mean that you end up in a, in a blessed state, right? There's no guarantee Okay, so you're basically saying that there's a kind of functional relationship between one's nearness to death or orientation towards death, a kind of honest and direct reckoning with the prospect of death and an authentic life. Yes. And so it would also follow that the inauthenticity that characterizes most people at most times is in part based on or because of, you might even say, their kind of constant neurotic fear of death and, and kind of running away from the prospect of death. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you could put it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how can you, so a lot of, a lot of people will interpret this in kind of popular debates about kind of longevity extension and stuff like this. And and so in a way, people who are obsessed with living really long today are on one hand, you can think of them as, you know, embracing life and being affirmative and moving forward and kind of fearlessly uh, having disregard for death. But in other ways, they're obviously kind of uh, terrified of death and, and doing everything they can to avoid it. Yes. So, um, so yeah. there's a bit of a, con- there, I wouldn't call it a contradiction necessarily, but it, that kind of confuses how someone might interpret what you're saying. In other words, is the drive for life, is vitalism a kind of uh, a fear of death because my sense is that there is a kind of authentic affirmative healthy kind of vitalism a, a kind of lust for life just true living yeah. that has that almost forgets about death uh yeah. it, it's it's not a fear of death but it's a kind of a healthy healthy living disregard of it 
Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to a certain degree with Heidegger. Um, fear of death is what the, the they uh, has, right? Um, not taking that seriously, etc. That, that's what happens there. Um, but for Heidegger, just to put this very briefly, by, by running forth towards death, or pushing yourself into your own most possibility, as he, as he calls it, eigenste Möglichkeit, um, which is unsurpassable, that pushes you back to where you are. That's not being only directed towards death. Death, you could think of as the ultimate horizon. Okay. Horizon, right. horizon so, means limit. Right. So, in order, in order to have any direction and sense where you are, where am I going? Oh, I'm going uh, to meet a friend at a bar. Um, I, I have to have a sense of direction where I'm going, and that's horizontal. So, if death is that ultimate horizon, you could say, uh, or at least gives. I would not, to be very, you know, picky, uh, gives rise to an ultimate horizon because death itself is not a horizon. Why? Because it cannot be a projection of a subject. But um, without such an ultimate horizon, there's how could you have any other, so like any other authentic and inauthentic possibilities, but also any other horizons within the world um, light up thanks to running forth towards death. And for Heidegger, it would be someone who's, in complete denial of death and trying to extend life, that, that's the most inauthentic existence you could have. Um, and you're actually, and you know, actually, the, the strange thing about Silicon Valley and all of this, uh, and I've met people who are, you know, who, who have invested in, is it cryonics? Is that the word for it? Sure. Did I mention that? I don't know if I mentioned it in London, but what's so strange about them is that if you, you they are all, all they think about is death. <laughs> They want to extend life, uh, first of all, to do what? To watch more Netflix? And then, second of all, um, it, what, what they're focused on is death, but in such an inauthentic way. It's not my death. I'm going to push it away further, further away. But actually, all of their lives, their entire focus is on their death that they hate and loathe. Um, you know, and, and language tells you that there, there is no word for us mortals to be immortal. We cannot... You're still, it's relentless. You cannot be immortal without sort of circling around death, mortality still. Right. So the Heidegger, the Heideggerian orientation towards death is not like a constant thinking about it. You don't no, have to be not. constantly meditating upon it to no. have the proper relationship with it, according to Heidegger. No. But it's more like um, flinging yourself into life in, in, you know, the most authentic way that you can, something like that, that, that is uh, a kind of reckoning with death because it's the idea that like, if you're, if you think of, if you think of death as your horizon or a horizon, even though I know you just said it's not technically a horizon, but if, you, but if you're kind of aware of death as a possible ultimate horizon, it yeah. does have a way of emboldening you, you know, to make, to choose your words and to choose your actions in yeah. a way that is, uh, kind of disregarding of short-term contingent uh, social and political pressures, because if if ultimately your your true your true how should I put it um, your your true kind of anchor for for thinking about your, what your own priorities and decisions is is this kind of radical prospect of death. It does have a way of 
allowing you to live more fully or something like that. It's hard to say this without lapsing into stupid cliches. Yes. It's, you see, that, but that's where we are, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's unfortunately the age we live in. And I think that's, on Passat, just to mention it, I think that, that that's where Heidegger more and more coins neologisms and speaks in a way that that's also non-philosophical and absolutely non-metaphysical, etc. Is because, as he says in, in a very, very important book, Beiträge zur Philosophie, uh, Contributions to Philosophy, he says that th this is a silly title. Contributions to Philosophy is just such a silly title. But if I were to publish this, I, I can only publish this if I call it contributions to philosophy, because that's where we are. And this is, you know, 80 years ago or so. Um, and, and he also says that we now have to find a very different language uh, to, to, to think about anything, because every philosophical word has, has become vacuous. Mm. It's like a continuous... I met one of my mentors a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, anything written about Nietzsche, Nietzsche is just a continuous source of for feuilleton writers and the culture page writers. It's it's everywhere. So philosophy, the strange thing of our age about it is philosophy is everywhere. There's, there's so many Nietzsche books. It's everywhere. You open the world, philosophy here, philosophy there. Um, but then you wonder, are you, are you really going to where it actually hurts, right? Uh, and Heidegger certainly does that. Um, and and it's it's by and exactly you know the, I don't you don't want to sound like a, as we talked about like a life coach or something say like, oh you know uh, just think about if you, if you died tomorrow what would you do today that, that, right that's not it because there is something underneath I think in being in time what's going on it's not you know it's still phenomenology so it's still descriptive it's describing structures. And it's describing attunements and, and structures, and, and those structures happen to be called Dasein, which is not you and me. That, that's just Dasein is, as he calls it, the being of the human being. That means presence. And what happens, um, I think, in being in time, if, if there's anything transformative about it, is not that it tells you what to do, but it shows you what's going on anyways. So you are, if you like it or not, you are towards your death anyways. Mm. And what happens in a profound reading of being in time um, is that it, it it pushes you furthest to 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 death, and, and what you what can be realized there, I think, is that being itself withdraws. Is that you you don't reach a state where you're finally authentic or something. Is that there isn't any presence withdrawal and concealment and, and refusal is active, right? Heidegger has this notion of, of being as a, a draw, a self-concealing draw. There's no trace of being ultimately. And that's the exact opposite of what we are trying to do or what technology is trying to do, which is having everything perfectly graspable uh, as an object uh, or at least as an artifact of something that, that was once real. Um, and and then available as such forever and always in the same you know, same uh, way, right? That there's no, um, there's, it's a very strange period we live in because it it, it it's uh, it's it's eradicating time, right? You were also telling me, Johannes, about different experiences of time, 
yeah. and how there's a kind of homogeneous linear time, but then there's also a kind of heterogeneous, nonlinear, ecstatic time. Would you mind reviewing that idea for me and, and take as much time as you want or need? Yeah, that's... <laughs> Um, it's very strange to to talk about ecstatic time um, or to write about it because it 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 might sound completely mad. Um, well, just go one step at a time. Why don't you start by helping us understand, help us help us understand the traditional kind of philosophical conception of homogeneous or linear time? Start with that, and then well, yeah. yeah, the. The, the, the story that Heidegger gives and that probably is quite accurate is that time has been conceptualized or understood as linear. And that, that's true for Aristotle and that remains true up until this day uh, in most analytical, philo analytical philosophy, for example, um, where when we think of time, time is simply the flow of now states. So you move from T1 to T2 to T3. Um, I'm thinking about writing a paper just for fun on a different name where what happens at T1.5? I don't think that's done, been done yet. But even to, to we've when we set the date for this, we agreed on, is this is the 6th of April, I think. Uh, we agreed uh, on the 6th of April at 4 p.m. UK time. Now, for Heidegger, if linear time or if time worked purely in a linear fashion, then we could not even make sense of that. How could we make sense of agreeing with someone else to meet, and language is a bit of tricky here, at a certain point in time? Um, so language is sort of, it, it's already it's talking in a way that, that, that it sounds like time is linear, but for Heidegger to have dateability, the fact that we use calendars, etc., can make sense of that, is only possible if what is to come, that is the future, and that which currently is the, the present moment, has some, has, is almost, comes from what has been. That there is a, that there's, there's not now, and then now it's just past, and it moves into this container of, of history that we can look at, like a it's just data. Uh, and then the future is this open um, nothingness or void. Um, no, there, there's something else at work. There's uh, anything that is now is structured by what has been in a relationship with what, with what is to come. So there is this continuous wave movement of coming back Right, it's coming back, but but that doesn't mean that anything that is to come only comes from the past, because there's a, at the same time there's a it 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 it, it breaks open new horizon, new horizons anyways. Because why? Because being is fissured. There's there are fissures in being. Sorry, and that always. So what is to come moves from what has been, in a sort of a wavelength like this. <laughs> And I'm trying to show it with my hands. And then it pushes back into a present moment. And that present moment is to a certain degree what has been and then pushes itself back uh, again. And um, Heidegger has, you know, when we, when we speak of time, we, we say that time passes. And that's obviously true when we think of time as linear. That it's just now, 
now and, and, and another now. But Heidegger asks him being in time, and I think that that that's something that that hasn't been picked up yet uh, enough. Is Heidegger asks why don't we think of time as arising? So ecstatic time is fund fundamentally not passing. Ecstatic time, which is original temporality for Heidegger, uh, is actually arising, and then it, it makes more sense, right? And if you think, if you think that time is arising rather than passing, you've entered a different temporality, anyways. And then, for example, facing death or running forth towards death already begins to mean something else as well. If time is arising, then time itself is something that gives. So there's a sense of You know, gifting and, and, and um, a very different way of being present than what all of philosophy tells us. I mean, up until up until Hegel and, and, and especially Nietzsche, it's it's metaphysics always tries to, in a certain way, eradicate time and at the same time uh, overcome it and 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 enter eternity. But so, for for example, the now there's there's just a flow of now states. And therefore, eternity is thought of as a standing now, the nunc stans, just a standing now. You can think of the internet as a nunc stans. It, it's always, and that, that's literally what's, what's happening anyways. The, the, the reason technically that, that we can do this right now, because you're, you're in New Jersey, it's 11 a.m. and it's 4 p.m. here, is because time has been flattened online. It needs to be flattened so we can access the same timeline. It needs to be homogenized. So that's working with, with a linear, linearized uh, uh, version of time, which is derivative for Heidegger, which you could th say is inauthentic, etc. But I think for Heidegger, it's possible to enter uh, an ecstatic temporality where, um, where and these, these are some of the strangest uh, things that he's writing on, where you can almost see what's going to happen. And he has this um, passage in a, in a book on Nietzsche where he says that, um, and I'm trying to find the passage now, what we would, I think, call, um, what we would call it a deja vu today is he says that there are sometimes these uh, dark and strange uh, moments or experiences where we think that whatever's happening right now has already happened, right? There's a very, right. These, these moments, we've all been there, but then, of course, yeah. Yeah, if you're a natural scientist, oh, that's because uh, your brain is lacking oxygen and therefore it's not, you know, it's not processing information quickly. Oh, okay, okay, thanks. But for Heidegger, it, it indicates that that which is to come to a certain degree has been. Doesn't, and, and there are movies being made in that, in that direction of, Arrival is an example. I don't know if you've seen that very recently. No, I haven't. Oh, yes, I have. Yeah, of course I have. Yeah, yeah. Aliens. Right. Arrive. I mean, you know, we could talk. <laughs> it kind of <laughs> sounds like uh, someone you've had on your podcast before. Aliens arrive and they have a different temporality. How? By having a nonlinear language. Right. Now, when Heidegger, for example, speaks of Ereignis, which is falsely translated as the event, He calls the Ereignis that which comes into its own as it withdraws. That's not a proposition. How do you represent that? That, that is, that's trying to articulate uh, simultaneity and ecstatic temporality. So you were saying that 
increasingly today, it's as if we are trying to flatten time more yeah. and more radically as evidenced by something like the internet. So yeah. if, we, if that is the case, what would we expect to find in what way is, in what way is reality is, is the true structure of reality going to snap back at us? <laughs> That's a good question. If not. Well, um, there's a there's a word it's not my I think it's uh, from an Italian philosopher called Cino Taccaria. Uh, he calls it, it what's going on is tempocide. Um, so how is reality going to snap back at us? I think it already is. <laughs> uh, but how do we interpret that in the lens of ecstatic time or you know the 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 nonlinear circular nature of time? Like, is it something like yeah. the is it the circle of time is 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 getting compressed? Is it something like that? Is the is the circular motion of time speeding up? Could we say something like that? Uh, there is. I mean, it doesn't. There, I don't think that time is a circle. Uh, if you want to put it for for your for your listeners or viewers, it, it so they can sort of have a have imagine it a bit. Think yeah. of it as waves. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very interesting. In another film called Interstellar. Uh, they're on a planet where time is speeding up extremely, but it feels very slow to them. And, and um, there's huge waves going by. And I think they're trying to show that uh, wave uh, dimension, wave movement of, of time, of that dimensionality. Could we um, just pause on that real quick? Because th that makes a lot of sense in one way, but then it makes it hard to process how, how, how the future kind of cycles with the past what you were saying before so yeah in what if it's if time is a wave like motion it's, it's hard to see how how the future kind of comes comes into the present it no because it because it doesn't just cycle right if you if you want to put it in a it's there is time time is arising first of all mm -hmm. right and if if so <laughs> that's that's perhaps the fundamental movement and then it what has been properly is is always already factoring through that which is in a way that it's coming towards us, but that's not circular. There okay. is still this arising uh, uh, movement or turning of time itself that opens certain realms of, of projection within which appearance is possible. And okay. So that's right. how you make sense of who you were before, for example. Right. Okay, that's good. So you can carry on then. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. Um, and you asked before how it's sort of already messing with us. Well, what uh, I was asking was if, if the conventional notion of time is wrong yeah. and there, yeah. there is this kind of Heideggerian structure of time that is the true model, and we in our conventional state as human beings, in our kind of modern technological mindset, which Heidegger yeah. talks a lot about and thinks a lot about, yeah. if, if we are operating on our ourselves in a way that is out of sync with the true nature of time. And we're becoming increasingly uh, aggressive about flattening time, for instance, what would Heidegger's philosophy teach us to expect is going to be the kind of uh, the, the resulting consequences on the level of reality. A, a breakdown of meaning at on levels that are even worse than now. <laughs> okay. Um, and you know this is the laughter of despair, uh, but uh, it's you. You can see, I think, what I'm trying to say. I mean, would you agree that we are that we are continuously living through non 
linear events, right? I mean, you, the, that linearity of time doesn't seem to make much sense anymore. That, that for me, that's just a certain sense. Someone with you know your extreme, as I said when we first talked, extreme hypothetical mind. You can give like proper empirical examples. I'm, I'm really bad at that. But I, I'm, what I'm reading all over the, the internet everywhere is so, oh, you know, there's something very strange happening. Systems, economies will become nonlinear. And we've lived in this very strange Keynesian bubble for the past 80 years, which, oh, let's just print all the money we can because in X amount, and by the way, Keynes himself thought that by the 1920s, we would actually have, by using usury, interestingly, uh, to its absolute maximum and limit, be really evil about money and, and, and greed. Um, we could reach a, a state where we could live forever without doing anything, uh, just live off the substance that we created before. And that's a very linear understanding of time. And the, the way that, that governments work, the way that national economies or certain also the global economy works is, is purely linearly, but, but it's not working anymore. So they have to invent all of these ex terrible, weird, synthetic nonsense like negative interest rates and very cheap debts at very high interest rates uh, just to keep everything going. Um, but it, it doesn't seem to, to really function properly anymore. And maybe you have better examples uh, than me, um, but the way it'll, it'll come back at us is precisely by a breakdown of meaning or the way we have tried to make meaning of the world as it is. Right. It's almost as if the result might be that being increasingly escapes us, right? It's increasingly yeah. foreclosed to us, something like that? Yeah. Yes. I mean, yes. And, and you know, what does that mean? Is that that's nothing mystical or that's not God or anything. It's just everything feels a bit empty. Yes. And people have a hard time even accessing some kind of state or project or tendency that gets them feeling like they're even making any progress toward a more kind of true state of being, right? It's like severe alienation seems to be really locked in for, for very large numbers of people. Yeah. Uh, myself included, possibly. I, I mean, who knows? I'm not, I'm not putting myself above yeah, that. Probably uh, where the worst is of that. It. Is that a kind of Heideggerian upshot of, of, of all of this? And in, in the sense that is Heidegger's philosophy a way to understand how, we've become so alienated. Is it something about the structure of time and the structure of being yes. that, that we have significantly misunderstood and we have, as a civilization have, have made a series of wagers on essentially wrong interpretations of yeah. who we are and, and the structure of, of reality. But now we're locked into those wagers. They're increasingly uh, kind of self-fulfilling prophecies that operate over and above us. And we are, it's almost as if we are watching ourselves become uh, ineluctably farther and farther away from, from access to our own being. Yeah, uh, there's so much in that. Because when you say locked in, I think of the cave, mm. right? Um, so what, what, I mean, there's so much that I want to address now because of what you said. It, it, I think that's exactly it. And, and watching ourselves, we're literally watching ourselves. <laughs> we are watching. Why are we watching ourselves all the time? What is that? Why are we doing that? Because we have no sense of who and where we are. And now the strangest thought maybe is that we're not very old, right? 
Now, with the, the, the explosion of, of over the past 500 years, exactly, you know, the world's going to end in 10, what is it now, 5 billion years, whatever the amount of years it is, then the sun implodes, yada, yada. and it goes back that amount of years, back until the Big Bang, which is sort of Genesis without God. Um, but think, and then in between, you had dinosaurs and blah, 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 but none of that matters. But none of that matters for us at all, because we have to make sense of, 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 of who we are now, and and, and thinking itself as far as we can trace it in terms of textual evidence, etc., is only about in, in the way that, you know, it, 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 it has now spread globally uh, is only about 2,500 years old. Mm. And, and that is and Heidegger is very, 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 um, I mean, he's almost like accusing Europe all the time. He's saying, what is happening? We are Europeanizing the world. It's planetary. But we don't even know who we are anymore. We we haven't even figured out who we are. So on on the one hand, there's 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 a great sense of despair in Heidegger um, that we've kind of lost what was going on. But that wasn't lost in, with Descartes or anyone. There's already beginning to to lose power with Plato. Uh, we can talk about concealing and concealment here then, how to understand Heidegger better, because that's what he thinks metaphysics forgets. Right? That's a, it, its limit is, is self concealing. Um, but on the other hand, thinking is very young. So it's only just beginning. Mm -hmm. So there, there is, even though, you know, it's a very desolate age, as he quotes, uh, Hölderlin, who locked himself in a tower for about 20 years or was locked in as well for some time is, is that kind of, um, so, so there is still, there is still hope you could say, uh, for 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 a future thinking, for a different way of thinking, uh, that that will uh, appreciate what we have forgotten, and very much to so have forgotten in the Occident or in the Western world, we we are the the Western world is that culture or civilization of objectification. It's not no, no one else is doing that. This is it become it starts with us, right? So. Johannes, I'm most familiar with Heidegger's writings on technology. I've taught them a little bit. And there's this idea yeah. in Heidegger about how modern technology makes us relate to the world in a way that sees everything around us as what he calls standing reserve. And it's basically, you know, to, to put it very crudely, we, we tend to see things just as objects to be used for some other purpose. And he talks about in the question concerning technology about the the risk or the prospect of reaching a point where we start to see ourselves as standing reserve and each other as standing reserve. And I forget the lines, but I get I get the impression from that text that he seemed to to fear a distinct possibility that at a certain threshold where we we saw ourselves as standing reserve, that we could kind of reach a threshold in which we become once and for all kind of foreclosed to ourselves. He seemed, he seemed that was, that was my impression. Anyway, he seemed, he seemed to, to fear a, a, a particular kind of catastrophic juncture like that could, could arise. Is that your reading or am I missing something? Yes. Um, I could, I could give you the, the standard academic uh, response. which I think, yes, I think you're right. There's a tension in Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking works by tensions, right? That's why we're not interested in contradictions. I think to both of us, uh, but uh, yes, I think that is that impression is is absolutely accurate. It's he does fear that being 
could abandon us for good. Um, but that would no longer be a, a human world and it would not be recognizable. It would be, we would enter the age of machines. He, very, he does say that in a text on language. So my fear is that what if we've already crossed that threshold? <laughs> How would we? Um, well, okay, I, I can, there, there's another way of looking at Heidegger. It's okay, that's a good question. But within Heidegger, it's, um, he, he doesn't, there is no ultimate eschatology or, or teleology. Um, he doesn't, if you, if you look purely at, at the logic of, of his, or the structures of his thinking, that there isn't, he doesn't say that the Gestell uh, positionality or in framing as it's translated is eternal. Uh, and he does say also that the Gethiat, so the gathering of the four poles of divinity or gods, sky, earth, and, and mortals, us, um, is, is that's proper world. And we can talk about that also. That, that is actually um, only lighting up during is only possible at the same time as positionality is possible. So as this is speeding up and becoming more and more invasive um, and, and, and showing its, its true nature to more and more people, right? We're not, we're not completely gone. They, they, you can see it more and more what's going on. Um, that's when all of a sudden, there, is a, there can be a breakdown within it because it's not, it, the being is still fissured uh, and, and another, something else is returning. And that returning is a world for human beings and that lights up in something very simple like a, a, a bridge, right? Um, but he's certainly, Heidegger's certainly not saying like the, the Heide, Hubert Dreyfus, who's, who's, a, who's an American uh, Heidegger scholar, would say, you know, Let's just drink tea like the Japanese and everything will be fine. Uh, no, we, we cannot. The weird thing is that we cannot sort of will anything. We cannot will for something else to come about. What we can do, and th that, that's because we're mortal and finite beings, is that we have to respond to something, to what's going on, in a different way than we've responded to it before. So none of this is something you can just change and, and say, oh, I'm going to face death and then I'm going to be more authentic and, and not use technology. That's not what he's saying either. It, it's There's something, it's all about how we respond to it. So at, on the one hand, he's saying being is completely withdrawing, being is completely refusing itself. But, but at, on the other hand, that's exactly how being works, right? So if that, if that utter withdrawal is all of a sudden showing itself, that's actually for Heidegger, that's a great chance because all of a sudden that withdrawal shows itself. Right. So now we can begin to respond to it differently. And that's just planting in the seeds for generations to come. Right. So we, yeah, he talks about the supreme danger and how the supreme danger is also the saving power. Yeah. Uh, yeah, by the way, I just thought of, thought, thought of uh, just reminded me of something else and how, how we've sort of already eradicated time to a certain degree. We, we don't have to respect seasons anymore. I mean, we don't. Human beings always had to. Now we don't have to do that anymore. Not really. We, we can just grow everything at any time, anywhere. Um, or night and day. Right? This kind of you know planetary thinking of, of you can just build any building anywhere and it won't lead to any problems. You, you can have roads everywhere. Uh, it, it's, that, it, it's so pervasive. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's, you know, 
not 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 leaving much room. Um, and and there are moments in Heidegger where he says it has to get a lot worse. It'll be absolutely terrible and dire for centuries to come. It'll be, we'll just be workers. Uh, <laughs> value will be extracted from a, extracted from us. Um, there's absolutely no goal. There's an that's a quote from Heidegger's will to will that works by an anarchy of catastrophes, but it uses that's that's a quote from Heidegger. Can you imagine? But these that that anarchy is uh, portrayed as sort of you know the triumphant human subject that now controls the earth, and we call it, of course, the Anthropocene. So I, I would still think though that there is for Heidegger still an opening um, and there is an opening precisely when being withdraws the most it ever has maybe. Wow. Yeah, that's great. That's really, that's a really good point. I do kind of recall that now how he talks about, although he thinks you get the impression he thinks we might be on the threshold of kind of irrevocable yeah. disaster. He also, yeah, he makes that point. I think he, he quotes yeah. Holderlin as, as a citation for this, for this insight that, it's precisely the realization of that supreme danger that we gain a kind of access to precisely what we might be looking for. Yes. I mean, only then. And so, this, this is why thinking is very young. Right. It's only just beginning. But once, once the gestell, right, techniques in its essence, in essence doesn't have nothing to do with metaphysics. It's a very bad translation. The, the Wesen, the Technologie, Wesen, the Technik, sorry, means something like uh, the, the, the dimensionality within which something occurs in a certain way. For example, beings now occur as standing reserve. That, that, the fact that this has shown itself to Heidegger means that it's already shifting. There are shifts occurring, mm. right? Because being, being is ultimately is fissured. Uh, and we're always standing in the abyss anyway. So we're always mm. wanting to be like one step in chaos, one step in logos. But that's a bit, you know, a bit like Jordan Peterson. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but um, <laughs> but the fact that there's, that he can see it and call it Gestell um, means that something is shifting. And it's shifting very slowly, but that creates an opening. And that right. opening... Re- creates a way of responding to it so nothing is lost right i mean you've, right. You've, you've given up when you when you think when you when you present an eschatology you say you know this is anyway how it's going to happen but there's right. something arriving from the future and we can do nothing about it that's actually that's uh apocalyptic thinking um without god um so for heidegger certainly there is something at work that's not human and there is something arriving that's not human but it's a question of how we respond to it. And the, actually it's a great chance because if if linearity is breaking apart as it right now, as it as it's doing, and also as it's doing in technology, then we can finally leave that matrix of linear temporality that's keeping us, you know, to a certain degree uh, locked in and locked in ourselves, and then seeing something else. That's beautiful. That's very, very based. I appreciate that. <laughs> I still so, don't know what that means, but <laughs> it means good, basically. Okay. So we have a question from Crypt. Big ups to Crypt uh, for three bucks Canadian. Thank you very much, sir. The question is: 
do you have any thoughts on the economization of synthetic time? Now, that itself uh, is a little cryptic, but I think I know what he's getting at a little bit. I know that you're not a major reader of Nick Land, Johannes, but Nick Land did write his dissertation on Heidegger. I forget, I forget, I forget the details, but it was at least to some degree about Heidegger. And uh, there is this idea coming out of Nick Land that Bitcoin represents this kind of profound moment in the history of philosophy. He thinks that Bitcoin is what he calls a truth machine. And that what's going on there is a economization of synthetic time. I'm just going to leave that very cryptic and open-ended for you to just basically, would you like to riff on that in any way whatsoever? Does that kind of make you think of anything in the Heideggerian perspective? Well, um, it's, you can almost say what's, what's happening with time is something that's extremely strange in that regard that you can turn it into something. And that's maybe what he's getting at there, right? Is that it's becoming an object, if you like, of use. Um, and, and that's, to a certain degree, I would say that that, that comes about as well from, from the way we've, we've thought of time for a, certain, for, for a long time, um, which is to, to say, no, let, let's do this now that that's going to save us time. How do you save time? Where is it? Where is it going? You know, it, it's this kind of, you cannot, right. I mean, I don't want to say too much of you know, the quantification of time, etc. But if, if you think of time from, if you begin to think about time from the clock, from the watch, right? From clock time. Then that obviously must lead in, 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 a, in an age like ours to an economization or uh, mod- commodification of time. Yes, but that's not time. It's not, and it's, if it's called synth- synthetic time, sorry, then it's just not time at all. It still has an effect on us um, because we are these very strange beings who by the way we, we respond to what's calling us all the time, and if, even if we don't respond, we've responded, right? Um, even if with indifference, then we've responded because it, if we say, no, this doesn't concern me, um, then that's a response. And that feeds back into that realm of possibility that is being. And then that sh- shoots, flashes again, Heraclitus says, right, the, the flash of, of being that, that comes back at us. And by the way, Heraclitus also says, you know, we're always listening to the logos. We're always hearing the logos, but we're never listening to it. Not, or not everyone is. So that, that's what Heidegger says as well. Mm. So in, the, in, in that way, yes, synthetic time can structure our experience, which is ultimately what it means to be human is to have experiences, right? And, and, and be in a, in a certain spatial-temporal occurrence and then try to make sense of that. But that doesn't mean that that's the ultimate sort of... Um, way of understanding time is just an understanding of time that is in itself limited. It begins from, from, from the wrong assumptions. It begins from the assumption that time is a clock or or that you can measure time in that way. Interesting. So you were saying that to the degree you're saving or storing time to, then it's not really time. No, but where is it? 
Well, I think the idea is that Bitcoin, blockchain more generally, has some very peculiar properties in which it essentially creates its own time. Yeah, it, 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 because it basically has this kind of intrinsic clocking system. I think Nick Land calls it absolute succession. It doesn't, it doesn't draw on anything outside of itself for, for its own, for its own clock, basically that it, it, it is in some sense time itself, but you can, you know, you can basically bootstrap it yourself. You can make a bunch of blockchains, right? You can basically kind of create these artificial time systems that are totally self clocking and self sustaining, I think is the idea. So I'm just curious if that if that uh, resonates. Is that you. actually already happening? What's that? So that that's that's how blockchain works. Then I think he he Nick Land seems to think that Bitcoin is sort of the technological discovery, uh, in which the the creation of these synthetic time machines finally <laughs> becomes becomes technologically inst instantiated. Okay. I would say that that's a certain response to how time has been interpreted. Because if you say succession, I hear linearity, uh, right? So it's 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 a natural, you could almost say, response, consequential, out of how we've understood time for the most part of how we've been thinking uh, in, a, in a European way. And that that's that's the result. That's one of the results of it. But it doesn't like how you know this kind of does science find reality or not? That's basically what this is getting at as well. And if, you know, within, within a transcendental framework, if no, I mean, there, there, that did not exist before we did, you know, if, if you stick with Kant, then that was not there. We found before we found it because it's still idealism. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think that that's just a, uh, that's just, you know, human beings always respond and it, that's one way of responding to how time has been thought of for the most part of, of our history of thinking. But it certainly is not the only way of responding to that problem. Right, right. Okay. That, no, that's all very interesting. That That's enough for that. We don't need to uh, dwell on that for too long. Thank, thank you for entertaining questions that you don't necessarily <laughs> have any uh, particular interest or background in. So, Johannes, could you tell me a little bit more about something you told me when we were hanging out? about the community of mortals. What is the community of mortals? What is the community? Um, I, know you're, to... I know you're highly offended by my vulgar and direct questioning. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Uh, obviously not. No, 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 no. Uh, it's, it's, um, before I can say anything about that, I need to say what Heidegger speaks about this. Sure. sure. So there is um, a series of talks that he gives uh, in the 50s and I think also in the 60s on technology. But at the same time, he also talks about the gefiat, the gathering of the four, as it's translated as a, a fourfold. Um, and he said those are talks that are entitled uh, Building Dwelling Thinking uh, or Das Ding, The Thing. And so you, you cannot separate sort of his, his trying to understand technology or techniques from his uh, vision or the possibility he sees of the fourfold. And within the, the world that he calls fourfold, there is um, 
what he says is something very strange. He says that mortals are those who can die. And that we have to become mortals. That's another very strange claim because from, from a scientific uh, point of view, death is just the end of life. It's, you know, cells stop splitting or whatever else happens and then off you go. Or the, or the brain stops working, I guess, for the most part, uh, death is now about the brain, isn't it? Um, for Heidegger to say that we, Heidegger actually does say we're not even mortal yet. So we haven't even accomplished that yet. That, that's still something to come. And the, the German is, Sterbliche um, sind die, die den Tod als Tod vermögen. Now, the standard translation that, that your you know, listeners will find in the English translations is something like mortals are those who are capable of death as death. And that sounds completely, that sounds, first of all, it's wrong. But second of all, if, if that was what Heidegger meant, that would, that would sound very, very strange, right? To be capable of death as death. What does that mean? To be to be operate with it somehow. Um, no, vermögen, you can hear mögen, which means to like, to love. Vermögen means something has addressed me. And I have dared to respond to it in a proper way. So when he's saying death as death, what does that mean? Death, why the why the hermeneutical as, right? Why, why do you have to open something up? Why not just death? Because death for Heidegger in after the war, uh, he, he begins to call death the Gebilg des Seins. And that means the mountain range of being or the gathering of concealment. So we need to talk about concealment. A bit. Um, so what he's saying when he's saying, die Sterblichen sind diejenigen, die den Tod als Tod vermögen. Mortals are those who are, you know, who are addressed by death and then dare to respond to it. If death then here means Gebilg, uh, which is the topic of my book, um, then, then that means that, that mortals must respond to concealment, to concealing. And that's the workings of time ultimately as well. right? So we need to begin to think after the withdrawal and refusal in any occurrence and appearance, rather than trying to do the exact opposite, which is trying to latch on and live in a world of sheer availability and bestand of standing reserve. And that's that's upon us. So that, that's how we are still free, is by responding to it differently. And that means by appreciating that in any opening, in any opening, in any disclosing, withdrawal and concealment is act, are active, right? And so the community of mortals, if you're asking what, what that would look like, um, I, I think that... You know, and these are you know, not just extremely abstract uh, uh, notions. Heidegger mentions um, the uh, Heidegger mentions that the, the almost like sacred places in a village, for example, or in a community, where you would have one room where children are being born, and right next to it, you would have the room where where people are allowed to die. And that in itself is already very different from how we think of. Of death, uh, because if, for us it's you know it's sanitized and it's outsourced and it's it's a, it's a very gross business when you when you if you've ever been to a hospital where there's 
happens on a daily basis. Pe- people die alone in a uh, sanitized, overhygienized uh, environment where um, there, it, there's almost nothing left that could that could put you. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body or or been with someone who you've you know who you've loved had loved before, and you see them there uh, lying dead. There's something very very peculiar about that. There's something very that pulls you down this it's not it's not about being being sad or anything but there's something opening up there's something opening up in, in when you see someone really leave this earth and maybe then going back in it and th- so the community of mortals would, would be would be a, a welcoming into life by birth right and and but at the same time being mindful that what what life in a community is about is to make it possible for for every one of its members to be to be to to be sent away to be to be let go in a way that they can let go and they want to let go and they are they are you know cherished and and that's why why do we we lack that to an extreme in a very in Germany, for example, just to give a very practical example for, for once, uh, within 10 years or so, they, they dig you out of your grave and put someone else in there. You're, you're gone, right? And, and it's not about keeping the memory up or anything, it, it's, but it's about the, the total denial of death. It's just this external thing that sometimes happens, but it certainly doesn't happen to me. It would never happen to me. How could it happen to me? How could it happen to my loved ones? And, oh, and all of a sudden, it, it it happens, but it doesn't. You can read these these stories. Like, oh, it, it didn't fit my my life plan. It didn't fit in. It so you you fall. I mean, there are cases of of uh, my mother is a psychologist. She's got people in therapy who uh, she's had people in therapy who who all of a sudden started suffering from cancer. They lost all of their friends because they couldn't compete anymore. Right? It's, you can say, oh, they're blah blah blah, but. In a community of mortals, that would not be an issue, because it, what is cherished here is that your presence itself is 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 only possible thanks to. And it's important that I say thanks to. That has to do with thanking, thanks to something that's already concealing itself. So this is a, a matter of how we think of concealment. Yes, I mean ultimately, if you you know on the. With Heidegger, it's very interesting. With Heidegger, there's the extreme, you could say, almost like abstract way of thinking, but then it breaks down to something very, very simple. Um, and it's, and I think that that Heidegger is here very close to to Rilke, and he he certainly read a lot of Rilke. For Rilke, death is the other side of life. Death is the other side of being. Um, death is uh, in the elegy. Rilke says that. Um, the death is our friend. Death, death is our friend, and, and every adult, an adult, is someone for Rilke who, who's able to let death grow within him. Right, and, and this it, it sounds morbid in our ages. Oh, you, you just, it's just you know, it's just born to die or living to die. No, but it's you. You cannot escape that one reality, which is your death. You cannot escape it. So rather than externalizing it. You internalize it and you let it grow with you. you. That's how you become an adult. 
So a community of mortals is in that Rilkean sense then, uh, an adult community that's completely faced up to the naked and tragic reality that all of us will die. Right. So the community of mortals is characterized by a collective will to think death, to think that which is concealed in a way that is different than kind of normal conventional social groups, which generally are all about kind of acting as if they're not going to die social competition and this kind of uh, charade that, that dominates. It, it, It binds you together. Right. You mentioned social competition is a very different language from Heidegger, obviously. Mm-hmm. But yes, I mean, that, that's something I've never thought of is why do we compete in such a, you know, brutal and awful way for nothing? I mean, we're not competing really for anything. We're competing literally over bullshit. Yeah. Owning more shit. But not owning yourself. Like owning who you are is not part of that. Why? Maybe it is because there's nothing that binds us together anymore. And maybe that we've talked about alienation before. And, and so the community of mortals, they're bound together by, by that insight into, the, into the, the, the tragic truth that we will die. Incipit tragedia. <laughs> Tragedy begins, Nietzsche says that Heidegger quotes him quite often on that. Is, and it only just begins. And it only just begins, especially in an age where God is dead. There is no hope. There's, there's, not, there's no afterlife. There's nothing that could save you. Any, anything that happens in, <clears throat> in Silicon Valley, uh, all of this nonsense of transhumanism and uploading yourself to the cloud, which first of all reduces you just to your base desires. Uh, and second of all, that's just near Christianity. So I, I'm curious, does Heidegger drop any hints about how the community of mortals is perceived by the community of non-mortals outside of the community of mortals. And the reason I ask, I'm just curious, is because there's this idea in Deleuze and Guattari about becoming imperceptible. And something I've I've actually been uh, focusing on it in the past few days. I've been writing some things about it because I I have a few things to say about it. And there is this idea that, to use a, a Heideggerian vocabulary that they don't use at all, Um, I have this sense that truly authentic living and especially kind of collective relationships that are authentic have a, have a peculiar property of being illegible to those who are outside of it, especially those who are kind of locked in the, you know, Dasman or, or the, they, you know, is there, are, are there any hints of that idea? Like how does the community of mortals get perceived by everyday people? I think that's a very good question. I think that Heidegger, uh, yeah, this is a, there's a, a conversation uh, he, uh, that you can actually find on YouTube uh, that Heidegger had with a Buddhist monk, where he he points out in his very uh, spitzbübische way that so he's got, he's like a he's he, he's he, you know he's almost like a little boy sometimes. So, but he 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 turns uh, around and says. So in that sense, every human being is mad, verrückt, beyond himself, transcending. Um, I think that uh, a group like that would be perceived as utterly mad. Right. That's right. And you know what this also makes me think about is how Heidegger is known for using a, a very dense and difficult language. And I believe I believe he's quite explicit about 
why that is. I think he believes, if I recall correctly, that one has to adopt this particularly uh, difficult, somewhat, some might even say esoteric kind of technical language, precisely because the nature of being is constantly eluding us. And using kind of everyday language will constantly fail to to get at what one is trying to get at. So I wonder, is there some sort of relationship here also to to the esoteric almost, to, to the use of languages and vocabularies that are uh, almost, they almost need to be obscure. Is there something going on there? Well, it, it depends on, it, it might sound very obscure to uh, a non-German ear. I will say this, whenever I travel back home, and I, I just went back home a couple of weeks ago, and my father picked me up from the airport and we went to, uh, we went through, so this, I'm, I'm from Augsburg. My father's from a village called Petriching, very close to Landsberg uh, in Bavaria. And when you, in that region, when you hear people talk and the, the accent is, I, I can try and, and it's, it'll be very contrived, but it'll, it'll sound a bit like it. Um, and I'll actually say something Heideggerian. I'll say something, the earth is that which conceals itself. The Erde verbirgt sich selbst. So you hear that there's a very, like the, the, the R is very strong and rough. When you hear people talk still, the, you know, the, the elderly, who still have a proper dialect, not an accent or these movie German, television German uh, uh, accents, but actually speak in a dialect vernacular. Um, it then very often it, I, when I come back from, from the empire, I realize that it, it is not that obscure, actually. It isn't that obscure because this is how Heidegger, how, how, how it would make immediate sense hmm. uh, to someone who is, you know, speaks in a dialect hmm. in, in that region. It would make sense. It makes less and less sense maybe the, the further north you go in Germany and the more you translate it to another language. Um, but, but then, on, on the other hand, it's what he says about uh, philosophy and its language, he, he does say if, if philosophy makes itself understandable, that's, it's, that's suicide. Hmm. I'm paraphrasing, he does say that as well, huh. right? Uh, so, it's, um, so on the one hand, that, that notion of Bergen and, and Fairbergen, etc., that, that's very close to, to, at least from the sound of it, um, to how, so that, that sense or meaning opens, discloses itself to me at least, more so when I'm, when I'm in these regions. But I think your question is trying to get at whether the such a community must be esoteric and closed off from, from others. We're not necessarily closed off, but doesn't it follow from what you're saying that the community of mortals would would want to evade being legible or classifiable or interpretable according to the categories and the schema of people yeah. outside the community of mortals wouldn't that actually be an active concern in some sense yes i yes i would agree because there's always this pressure and I feel like this is one of the pressures pulling us in back always into the Dasman of of explaining yourself to other people and yeah. and of oh, yeah. trying of trying to justify yourself to people that are outside of your community. But my my intuition has always been, and and I wonder if that if I can find Heideggerian support for this because it sounds like I can that 
the 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 authentic person and especially the the authentic person who is invested in an authentic community has no need to care whatsoever about how the, that community is perceived outside of that community and in fact it would be a characteristic trait of the authentic community to be purposefully and actively uh contemptuous of being understood by people outside of the community yes and and even indifferent right you don't need to make your yes i mean <laughs> language is not communication mm. right it's it's not it's not necessary that everyone understands it and this, and heidegger you know and heidegger of course he was then accused of being esoteric and whatnot and 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 ah oh, you're not making this understandable blah 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 mm. by people like habermas and others um no one blames uh scientists or or technicians for creating computers do you know how to operate a computer i have no idea how this thing works i right. I, i'm using it so right, right. and heidegger makes that example it's just that there are probably four people in the world today who can explain how a radio works everybody's using it so right, this right. thinking he says for now is in the sache so in in its like what's at stake in it that's very simple that that's not a that's not um Uh, a difficult thing to think, right, for him. But in, in performing that thinking, that's difficult. And actually living it, you could say, that that's that's very difficult. And okay, only for a few, but he doesn't say that it, it, it stops here. It could go to, to spread, etc. So my next question then is, and this was raised in the chat, by the way, also, but it's I'm, I'm quite interested in it myself. Where does God come into the picture? Oh yeah, only a god can save us now, right? I mean, that was probably uh, well, and in, in particular, the the idea of a return of God. Um, so Heidegger says in in the Spiegel interview, uh, which is the last interview he officially gave and was published after his death, which is also has also the title "Nur ein Gott kann uns jetzt noch retten." Only a god can save us now. Um, I guess with he doesn't. So that's not the Christian God. Um, that there is, however, as long as we are mortals and, and finite beings and not sort of, as he calls it, you know, monsters of machinic monsters. He does say that that's a bit of a paraphrase, but he does say that as long as that, that's not who we are, that's not who we've become, um, there, are there is necessarily an openness for, of, for gods or the divine to come and now there's no mythology he doesn't name the gods there is no they don't have if you like a, a function or anything um but what they are is ultimately they are again as they are on the level of, of sky uh, is that when you to put this in a non-hygienic way you look up to the heavens and what we see now is just an ever-expanding void Right, where, where we hope that aliens could come and that would somehow give us meaning. Probably not. <laughs> but we, but the, the, there are still, you know, tribes uh, and, and, and peoples on this very planet who, when they look up, they see an ultimate horizon. That means meaning. That, that, that sky where they live gives them orientation because it gives them meaning, which means it gives them, 
it tells them stories. The sky has always told us stories. I live in a city, you know, as you know, London, uh, where they're building one hideous skyscraper after another. And these skyscrapers are, I don't know, do you know, remember the shard? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, anyone who knows English knows what shard means. I don't have to explain <laughs> that. <laughs> I mean, it literally it looks, like that. Looks, yeah, it like that. looks unfinished. Um, it's, so it's, it's, that's postmodernism in a building, right? It's unfinished it's, and it's cutting into the sky. It wants to just literally break open that and cut it open and get rid of it, right? right. Uh, but, so in, if, if you're asking for divinities, it's, it's an experience and that's an original experience and that's how Heidegger or primordial in that sense. That it could be possible, and I think it still is possible, that you look up the sky, even in a place like London, maybe, who knows, um, and you, you begin to see that there's something at work larger than you that you're always already responding to and that you give, that all you do is co-respond with that and you give answers to it and that could lead to a mythology, such as Heidegger does, leaves that open. But without that, what you do is you're a desiring machine. There's no story that guides you. There's nothing that, that could tell you who you are except for i mean why do we have the you know i mean in a, in a way that that kind of a hope by many many people that aliens will finally arrive i mean that's a bit like could please could you know supreme beings come and, and give us right. like how is that how is that any more rational than believing in god but it's also just dumber <laughs> yeah, well they, they kind of answer that yourself it's not about rationality uh it's it's that would be I mean, I, I haven't thought about that, but it's it's gods are not gods cannot we cannot become gods, right? So that that's still the difference between aliens would just be would still be the same kind of life forms that we are, carbon based, etc., and then more advanced. That's usually how the story goes, extremely advanced, rather. Um, but they're not, uh, as it were, um, our limit. They're not a uh, on the one hand, a mirror of who we are, and on the other hand, a, a guideline of who we, how we should be, maybe. Mm-hmm. But it's not even about it, for Heidegger, it's not about morality or anything like that, anyways. Okay. But is there an openness to appreciate that there is something at work that's not us that then gives us that then that we respond to and that that gives us meaning? If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So the appropriate attitude then to Heidegger is just an openness to the possibility of, of God returning because just because there is this kind of clear blue sky that we don't know and can't know. And it's a kind of absolute uh, openness. It is in some sense that that is what it is. And so there's a, there's a, the, the, the appropriate way to, 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 to be open to a future of unconcealment would be something like the possibility of God unconcealing itself. Yes. Um, yes. I, yeah. I, I guess I would agree. But and 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 also, though. Um, I mean, if if we're with with unconcealment or disclosing, may, maybe we should move in that direction. Sure. Please. Uh, it's this is how Heidegger understands truth. He he goes back to the Greek word already in being in time, 
which is Aletheia, or I think the proper Greek pronunciation would be something like Aletheia. Um, and Lethe was the river of forgetting in Greek uh, mythology in, in, in Hades. Um, and Lantano means I forget or I conceal. And the alpha is not negative, but privative. So truth for Greeks, as you know, means for Heidegger, unconcealment. But in a way that, so in being in time, he's not quite there yet. It's quite interesting when he makes a, the example, he gives the example of Newton's laws of, um, of physics. Um, he says the Newtonian laws, they were at work. But what we now call Newtonian laws, they were at work before Newton but they had not been disclosed yet. Therefore, they were not true yet. They became true in the moment they were disclosed. But at the same time, when those laws are you know, shown to be at work in nature, uh, that closes off other possibilities of being. And that's what we forget, right? And we think in science works, as it assumes, uh, purely accumulatively. So it's just all accumulation. The more we know, the better we get. 2019, so it's going to be much better next year, um, but still pretty good now, given that we've survived the, the white decay and everything, right? the, the pending uh, apocalypse. Um, but that's always also there, which is also very strange, because actually that projection of the, the implosion of the sun is the apocalypse. But for Heidegger, is the insight is, and it may, perhaps it's very profound, perhaps it's just obvious, is that anything that's disclosed, for example, in a scientific finding, closes off other ways of possibility. Uh, sorry, other possibilities of being. And so, for example, but by you know, Newtonian laws and Kant's transcendental logic, um, they make possible that we fly airplanes. But they also they also cover over how we could be in the world and with nature in a very different way. Because as you know, with Kant, you know, the categories of the subject form the objectivity of the object, yada, yada, here we are, we make the world <laughs> the way we want it to be. Uh, and, and for Heidegger in, in, a, in a lecture course in, given in 1930 or 31 on truth and Plato's uh, analogy of the cave, he focuses more and more on concealment. So in being in time, it's some more about unconcealment and disclosure, but in the later text, it's more and more about concealment. What then? This is where Heidegger begins, right? Being in time is not even that important. Being in time is... He, I mean, being in time is such a very strange text because it it actually doesn't work. It, it, it's like he's trying to be a Husserlian phenomenologist and a Neo-Kantian uh, and also a bit Aristotelian. It's all over the place and then it collapses a bit and it doesn't continue um, because, because I think he's already bordering very often to the on the withdrawal of being itself. And that's, so he begins as a thinker. He's ignited as a thinker. His thinking begins when he realizes concealing that, that all of a sudden and then yeah, there's been a hundred hundred volumes, I think, so far published, and that that's just the published works, and they're usually about that size. Hmm. What? How is it that one man in, in in what forty years writes that much? 
because as he says, it's not me. I'm not writing. It is writing in me. He says that very often. He said it to his brother several times. Um, and what, 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 what's going on here is, is that what metaphysics, metaphysics has necessarily left in the dark is now all of a sudden coming to the fore more and more. And Heidegger has to think through it. So he's looking at the history of metaphysics and, and sees that there's always something at, works, at work that is deconcealing and self-patrol and refusal of being. And he makes that explicit in the uh, cave story. So the usual, I think, interpretation of the cave, uh, you, you could find probably tons of videos of that on YouTube, is that you know, people, as if some people know, there are prisoners in a cave, but they don't know that they are prisoners and they're in shackles, I think, and they look at what we, know, we would now call, interestingly, a screen. And one of them accidentally is freed, and it's you, and then, you know, walks up and, and sees that people are carrying torches and these figures made of clay, and actually what, what, what they've been looking at all this time was shadows, and he walks out again, and he says, oh, there's the sun, there's an actual tree, and it's truth and light of truth, and he walks back down, so he sees that shadows aren't real, and that's, the you know, it's just educational. What Plato's really trying to say is that, you know, don't believe what you see <laughs> for yourself. Uh, don't trust anything in the media. Um, or or the, now, of course, today, it's, you know, some people understand it as, you know, conspiratorial, that the media is always working against us and that they're, they're, they're not showing us reality. <laughs> reality just means thingliness. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. I mean, if the media is not showing us reality, it's because they can't. Like, literally, they cannot because that's <laughs> – how could they? It's just the medium. Um, so necessarily, they cannot show you reality. This just right. makes sense. The cave, the cave is a much deeper problem, you're saying. If, if that was the problem, no, how, why would you even read it? I mean, the, right. any any five-year-old can tell you that, that, you know, maybe something isn't always what it seems. Um, so really what's at stake is a more, a more kind of primordial uh, what's, what's embeddedness in the cave? What's at stake is the turning of being itself. What's at stake is 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 the very origin of, of any kind of history. What's at stake is that what you're looking at, the shadows, they are not they are real. I mean, how how why am I saying is they're not they're not unreal, they're real because it structures the world of these people, right? So they're genuine, but they're not real. So they're a seeming reality. Uh so all you know, so so real is an, I could be very facetious and say they're real because there are still things. Right? The shadows, that is. Yeah, but the shadows are, are in that sense, they are, there are beings that are not, that, that only seem to be. So right. they are. They are because really something. They are really there, but they're not what you think they are. Yes, but but that but they are. They are right. They are, are truly there. Yes, so they are, and and not, they're not just there. Socrates, the character Socrates or Plato. Describes it as they, they're memorizing the order of these shadows, and then the, the person who's capable of memorizing that correctly and then you know spinning it out again, oh, you win a prize. Which you, you can say that that's how our educational system works. Maybe it does, um, but 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 th that just says that the, the world, and it is a world in which these people live, is structured by by that horizon of what, 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 what we would now call a screen. So it's very much, it's real. It, it's their reality. 
Right. And by walking up, uh, Heidegger points out that um, that that um, Plato here uses the, in Greek apparently the, the word alethes quite often. So that, that would be the adjective of aletheia. There are moments of alethes of of unconcealings of disclosings. And one of them, of course, is when he when he starts seeing the, the torches uh, and the clay figures. But no, these are real. Right. I mean, there's nothing that, that's fake about it. But once you, once you're outside the cave and you look into the sun, it's described, I think, by Plato also as as painful. So it's not, you know, because the enlightenment, the, the way, I mean, it's we live in, in a very oh, the enlightenment values. We have to keep them. Enlightenment is something that's not. I mean, the French Revolution is this freedom, you know. <laughs> kill people but uh you look at the sun it's an extremely painful disorienting uh experience it's because you not, not because you realize that what you've seen so far is is false but because your eyes are not made out for that that utter disclosure but then interestingly why does not why doesn't play to stop there and say the you know the, the guy just yells down and says come on out that could have been the end of the story, coming out and a few people follow him and leave, just leave the rest in the cave. No, what happens is he goes back in. Why does he go back in? Why? Because there is no exit from the cave. There isn't. So Nick Landon's right on that regard. <laughs> hmm. You go back in and all of us, for the first time then, by bringing the light of the sun back down into the cave, you start to see the shadows as shadows. As shadows. They begin to light up as the seeming, as the appearance of something that they're not, only then. But Heidegger says that even though Plato is aware here of the concealment that's you know, primordial, um, he forgets, or we, not he forgets, but that's not, so when Heidegger says that we've forgotten being, or that Plato has forgotten being, it's, it's not that Plato is at fault or is uh, that, that he was wrong or something. It's just that the way he responded to being itself was in that way. And that has led to certain, you know, outcomes in history. But what's, what's forgotten is that, that, that unconcealing in the way up. And that means concealment is forgotten. And it's now the sun remains established as the light of truth that always guides everything and orders everything as, as you know, dynamis, as um, Plato says, it orders uh, all beings. But the way to get there from, from concealment, that's been forgotten. And we've continuously, for, you know, have now live in the world of, of, of sheer availability uh, and, and, uh, and, a standing reserve is almost like a, a result of that, not causalistic, but it is certainly uh, as a result of how we understand what it means to be, mm. is that everything stands ready and available. But that's that's so, sort of the, the, as he calls it, the, that's the first beginning of thinking. And the other beginning, the other beginning is directed towards a, a future that is then open, but only open, properly open, by going through what has been and thinking that which has not been thought properly in metaphysics. So it's metaphysics always already borders on that. So for example, very interesting, Kant in the first critique says that the, 
you know, there's conditions, 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 but at some point you have to say this, it's unconditional. Hmm. And that is the abyss for human reason. And Heidegger says to that, again in this book, uh, that we have to get serious about the abyss in Kant's thinking. And this is what Heidegger does. He's, he thinks through where metaphysics stops short. That's what Heidegger enters. Okay. Okay. So there is no exit from the cave, but what we can do is think unconcealment or think concealment, I should say. Yes. To, to be constantly thinking about what is concealed is the closest we can get to perhaps not exiting the cave, but accessing moments of, of disclosure. Yes. Moments is very good. Uh, the Augenblick, right? The blink of an eye, uh, the Kairos that then lights up. And th those are the, I mean, exit is a very, very dangerous uh, notion anyways, because it suggests that there is really a cave and there's really a door somewhere. Right. Um, and, and then if people start looking for something, I mean, it, it, and, and when Heidegger speaks of original thinking, people think, oh, he, he means going back 2000 years to, we were all peasants and, and, and everything was beautiful. No, original thinking can, can overcome you any given moment that you're open to it. And an exit is the way we, we respond to something. So the way we respond right now in our epoch to the demands of technology, which work through how, as you would put it, probably, you know, how we socially compete with each other, all of that, how we respond to that, opens up possibilities of being if we just respond to it in, in the you know inauthentic usual way right we are closing ourselves off from who we could be and and from forming proper genuine healthy communities right it's like what it's like how Deleuze says that nomad nomads never travel that that escape escape doesn't require going anywhere and that in fact yeah people who are constantly going on adventures and voyages are often the ones who are not truly nomadic they're not truly escaping anything they're actually the ones lost in you know their their mother or their daddy or whatever it might be the millennial generation right it's traveling a lot but it's a very similar it's a very similar structure of, of, of ideas there i would just say um the crucial difference between someone like deleuze and heidegger is that heidegger is in line with odysseus and master eckhart uh, the, the, the ground figure of the European human being is Odysseus. Why? Because Odysseus leaves his home, goes to war, right? and then tries to return and make it back home, but comes home. Master Eckert, there's a quote, I don't quite know where it is. Um, Gadamer quotes him in, um, in a speech he gave in honor of Paul, Na Paul Nator. Paul Nator was a new canton in Marburg at the time of Heidegger. Um, and, and Eckhart said, Warum geht ihr aus, um heimzukehren? Why do you go out to return home? And that is true for Heidegger also. That's true for him as well. So it is about coming back home. Um, if, if, if we're talking about um, escaping or getting out, to talk about this in terms of technology, is Heidegger has an essay on language, uh, a passage where he says, 
in order to get to to return to where where there is a, a, the possibility of a human world, um, we need to we need to return to where we are. So you see, that's the that that's the strange thought because we oh that's contradictory. Yeah. No, no, it's not dialectical. The, the movement is a turning, and that's always simultaneous. Always simultaneous. It's never linear. It's always simultaneous. So we, we are already where we're supposed to be. We need to get out. We need to get beyond. And then we see where we were supposed to be from the beginning. But you need to get out first and then return. But that getting out, it's not somewhere else, right? It's What is that getting out if it's not somewhere else? It's just thinking concealment. Is that right? So I think in a, in a, in a thinking stance, uh, it is, and it, it, for Heidegger, it all begins with thinking rather than, you know, meeting at uh, conferences and talking about, I don't know, climate change and how to tackle it with more technology. Uh, it's, it's uh, yes, it, it begins with thinking for him, yes. Right. And does this link up with what you were telling me the other day about the difference between resistance and releasement. Yes. I really liked that. And and it seems relevant here. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think one of the things that uh, Heidegger learns from Nietzsche is that if you are antithetical, right? Nietzsche is, he always talks about, Oh, don't, don't be resentful. Nietzsche is one of the most resentful pe- pe- people you can read. He's just full of spite for everything and everyone. And to a certain degree, I mean, I'm, I'm not a very political thinker or anything, but if you look at, and I don't care either way what, what people do, um, anti-fascists, they need fascists, right? And anti-fascism needs fascism in order to, it's a negative identity, if you like. Mm. So they are resisting uh, fascism in all its facets and therefore are completely directed at them. That's who they are. Um, and if you resist something, you actually, you feed it. If you resist capitalism, I mean, oh, I'm a punk now. I'm going to look terrible and smell. And five years later, it's a fashion. It's a fashion up until this day, right? Well, why is all of this getting sucked into? Uh, and you can even um, think of Heidegger's, you know, uh, denial of, of, of speaking in any way, uh, in a communicative uh, way, trying to make himself understandable, maybe that's also a certain sense of of, uh, of, of making it inaccessible for ordinary algorithms, with, which function by, uh, you know, how we usual, by copying usual ordinary speech patterns, for example, to put this... In a, in a way that I would never speak in. But um, so if you resist something, you feed what you are resisting. You are against it, and therefore you are not what you are resisting. Right. But Gelassenheit, uh, which is the German for releasement, has as its foundation the verb lassen. And the difference, for example, between a, a metaphysical understanding of being which would mean ground of beings, right? It's, it's the being and the metaphysics is always the ground of beings. But for Heidegger, being is not the ground. It, it, if anything, it's an abyss. It's a yawning emptiness. Being throws about around itself the nothing. 
um, and the nothing nihilates, he says. He, he um, and, and, and beings are let, so beings is all that is insofar that it is, that's all we can say about them. They are let into a free play. There's nothing that, that sort of, there's no ground for all beings. Um, so in, in Gelassenheit, you have that aspect of, or that moment of Lassen. And in, in that way that he speaks about, which is, which is us, which is human beings, is that we are let, we let ourselves into the world. And you, you, and it's almost, and then you release yourself from the demands that all of a sudden don't seem that important anymore, right? I mean, this maybe speaks to you. So all of a sudden you say, oh, this isn't actually real. <laughs> you right. climb up and you open the wheel and there's nothing there. Um, so it, the releasement is, you, you're not a, if you oppose something, you, you make it stronger. If you don't oppose it, but it, it, it evaporates. Right. It, so it, it almost it disappears. Right. Where, where is it? Where is that threat of technology if all of a sudden we were to collectively respond to it in a very different way that we do now? Because the way we respond to technology now is, is, is language, you know, we need to get ready for the digital age. Uh, we, need to, we need to master uh, digitization, yada, yada. That tells me that we're not in charge. If we need to master the digital age, then the digital age is not our age. Right, that has something working against us. But maybe so um, we're trying to either oppose it and and be Luddites, or we're trying to fit in with it, live according to the algorithms, right? To get more likes on Instagram, etc. Um, or feed the evaluation machine, which which this thing apparently needs. But if 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 we didn't react as we, I think, for the most part, you know, either trying to fit in and, and trying to work according to it and not opposing it either, but in a way being very released towards it, it might show another dimension that we hadn't seen before. Right. Right. So in a way, it frees you from this false binary of either protesting yeah. or complicit involvement. Yeah. Because, two is, two yeah. is a very dangerous number and Hegel is wrong about history. Um, so it, it, if your dialectics is uh, a, a way in which you can very easily explain everything uh, and it's, it, it's always this either or distinction. Why? It, 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 the, the reason you can have this either or distinction is because there's a simultaneity at work anyways. Hmm. Okay. At least two things are possible. But if there are two ways possible, why is there not a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth way that by appreciating something else that we usually do and how we usually would do it, that opens up, you know, it's, it's all about, um, it's all about Hölderlin for a very strange poem, I forgot which one, talks about how Time tears open horizons. So, in time for Heidegger, is 
the self-concealing clearing of being, which means presence. So in any presence, you can think of, think, think of presence as a realm. Thanks to that realm, beings appear as beings. They light up as what they are. And that always works in a way that that very presence is self-concealing. So you don't see gestell. You, you cannot see the essence of technology, of techniques. You don't see it. That you, cannot, you can look at as many technological objects as you like. You don't see that realm that makes them possible. But all of a sudden, if you start responding differently and think differently, for example, about time, Right? If you don't think about time that it's just passing you by and uh, stressful, oh, another day, let's, oh, let's kill time, I'm so bored. Um, if you think of time as arising, you start, it, it, it changes, it changes uh, the, the not, not the perception, but really the way you are in the world. Right, right. And so you could say that the authentic person or the community of authentic persons, the community of mortals, which actively practices the thinking of concealment is also going to be a community that never resists or never objects to that, which is transpiring in the status quo that, that, that perhaps it, perhaps the community of mortals feels certain disagreements with what's transpiring in the world around it outside of the community, but the yeah. community of mortals does not resist it because that would be a kind of uh, vulgar entrapment of the, the, by the forces of Das Mann uh, kind of resisting, resisting the injustices around it would be to uh, engage in a kind of nervous, fearful hiding, hiding from death, but rather the community of mortals practices an active releasement from that which in the status quo pulls people into injustice or something like that. Could you say? I, I, I need to hear more about what you mean by injustice um, and, sure. and, and what do you mean by resisting injustices? Cause that's, that's, that's beyond how I think about it, but sure, I'm, I'm yeah, trying well, to make sense of it. Sure, yeah. We don't necessarily need to even go down that route, but I'm just trying to translate what you're saying into just a somewhat more political uh, framework or, or, or political uh, schema in, in, in the sense that, you know, people sometimes ask me about my politics and sometimes, depending on the type of person I'm talking with, I sometimes playfully say that I'm a left Heideggerian yeah. and that's quite playful because I'm by no means a Heidegger expert as this interview is revealing, but I, I do know enough about Heidegger and his particular kind of moment in time. And the fact that he is seen as this kind of fairly sinister uh, extreme right-wing figure, which we'll get to in just a minute, I'd be remiss to let you go without at least a brief discussion of that. I like, I like this uh, notion of a left Heideggerianism just because it kind of scrambles people's categories and expectations. And for reasons that I think are now quite clear through this interview, uh, the outlines of a left Heideggerianism, I think are, are, are coming out quite clearly. So I, I was just trying to basically kind of put a little bit of a, a cap on, on that line of inquiry and those types of 
uh, connections or inferences one might draw from from what you're putting out here today. Um, now the question, so the question of injustices, I don't necessarily want to advance any particular theory of of justice, but I was more just referring to the 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 felt outrage or felt discomfort, the felt disagreement with goings on in the world uh, that you know strike us as as unconscionable, that strike us as false or wrong in some way. So let's be agnostic with respect to what is justice, but I'm talking about, you know, the human experience of perceiving and responding to injustices in the world is releasement sort of the slogan in some sense for a, a proper political response to the experience of feeling or, or, or observing injustices in the world. I mean, it's, it's, I would begin, what do you mean by observing injustices? I mean, if, you know, the outrage culture that we have that, that showed itself pretty neatly during, the, what is it, Coney or something, seven years ago or so, where, um, I mean, we, we can observe everything, right? And then resist everything. We can look at any kind of terrible thing that happens to people all over the world all the time, probably now life, because there's so many webcams and whatnot. Uh, and then, and then be extremely offended by that, and, and start giving money and resisting and blah blah. Uh, I don't, you know, how do you resist injustice? I mean, if or or unfreedom. If if there is freedom, there is unfreedom. If if the cave tells us anything, then you are free because you're not free at the same time. There is, if there is justice, then there is injustice. Um, so the, the response is not trying to uh, establish a, a planetary global solution to all the world's problems. Because if there's anything that philosophy, any serious philosopher knows that, is that suffering and pain is, from, is who we are. I mean, there is no non-tragic existence of being human means to accept tragedy. And that doesn't mean that you accept that people suffer absolutely senseless, terrible uh, uh, situations or, or that they, you know, that, that millions are killed uh, for nothing. Um, but it is, if, if you think of releasement, what you're actually doing is you are getting rid of will. Right, you are denying the will to power, and if Heidegger keeps talking about how the will to power has actually become now a, a blind will to will that just circles around itself, and that just wills itself to optimize itself, but there's no reason to it. There's no there's, there's no meaning to it, and that leads to more and more distraction. Uh, this not distraction that too, but also the destruction of the earth and of of human beings. Uh, where human beings are just itself now a mass that's that can be arbitrarily placed anywhere where you need them. Wherever you need to extract value, you put them there, right? Mm. You need to extract value, more value here. You just put, put 10 million in and extract value until you don't need them anymore. But right. there, there's nothing other at work than, than a blind will. But responding to that with releasement, you are denying the power of that will to will. That's just blindly executing its power over the earth. So you're denying that. And by that denial, and by a return also to who we are anyways, which is mortal beings, 
Right. There is an acceptance on the one end of tragedy, but not a giving into it, not a giving up uh, of. But it's you know if if we talked about the community of mortals, so there is that possibility of of where where suffering and and pain isn't blinded out or ignored or medicated or trying to be fought, but actually appreciated and cherished as part of who we are. Mm-hmm. That's a released, I think, response to that. Right. That's brilliant. That, that makes a lot of sense. The, the will is raging. I mean, if you look at it closely, make sense of that will to will. It's raging all over the place. Right. And trying to and resisting that feeds it. That's right. what, what it's feeding on. And the person that, that's a willful. That's a will. Will is always will. Schelling. Schelling says that Ursein ist Wille. Original being is will. Uh, Schopenhauer speaks of the will. So does uh, so does Nietzsche. That's not arbitrary, right? This understanding of history, which is in continental philosophy, is just that that they they are just responding to something that's showing itself in modernity, anyways. Mm-hmm. And so Heidegger is showing itself now is just a will to will, a will to will that's raging blindly across this planet, uh, destroying everything in its way, and actually feeding on what's resisting it. That's why releasement. Once you release yourself from that. It's it's not that that's when it be, that's when it begins to crumble, right? And so the kind of the error of my question was that the person who is kind of constantly scanning the world for possible injustices because they want to monitor and stop injustices where they monitor, you've said it then monitoring. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they, I mean, look, I'm, it's very strange that we could I can sit here very comfortably in London and look at all the injustices anywhere uh, and, and then get really angry, get an endorphin. What is it? You're, you're, the, you're, the, you're the scientist. You get some kind of an adrenaline kick uh-huh. uh, by feeling really good about myself. Um, it's none, none of this is to say that, that suffering is justified and, and killing a billion here and who gives a shit. Uh, right. That's Nietzsche. Nietzsche would say that, right? Nietzsche would say, what would you prefer, Shakespeare or killing 10 million people? He's like, Shakespeare. <laughs> if, if it means killing 10 million, who cares? Um, for Heidegger, no. I mean, Heidegger has, has, is extremely concerned about the human being. And, and, that, and he, the, the last written words by Heidegger, a couple of days or a month or so before he died, um, is that he's, he says it, it's, it's a, that you, you, it is, it's, what does he say? I think it's, it's questionable whether in this age of, of planetary homogenization uh, and, a, and a machine world or something like that, whether there can be something like home. And one of the greatest injustices is when people are deprived of having a dwelling and a home, right? But for him, why the reason why that happens is because the will is raging and it needs to destroy everything in its way. It needs to uproot everything and everyone. And by releasing yourself from it, from from even what you think is transitorily is is just you know maybe we can't even do that, um, but by by being just where you are, 
literally just being where you are and within you know where you are there's nothing stopping you um in a release taking a release stance in a released way there's nothing stopping you helping people in your community right the, the, why, the, why would heidegger oppose that it, right. quite the opposite because here you are just where you really are this is something that you can do in a very immediate uh sense that right. there's nothing that so you don't you, there's nothing you need to resist there's nothing stopping anyone in you know you can make big campaigns and do long walks through london and help the homeless or you just invite them into your house literally and give them something to eat or you just give them something to eat like that or build set something up a tent every second saturday where they can have soup or something nothing stopping you from that but right. it doesn't have to be uh, sort of a almost like a ca capitalist enterprise that then um, you know, I mean, look, look at all of these NGOs and they're just bureaucratic monsters. Definitely. And that's exactly what I was going to say, which <laughs> is that the error embedded into my question was that if you're a person who sees themselves as constantly monitoring the scene for possible injustices to stop or to organize against, then all that really means is that you're not practicing re releasement and you're actually, uh, highly plugged into precisely the, the kind of. Uh, exploitative, instrumental rationality that you are most concerned and terrified of, and and trying to protest, but you're actually trapped in it. Uh, if you if you see yourself as having some kind of uh, will or responsibility to be constantly resisting that which is wrong or bad, all that really means is that you're so already invested in a kind of instrumental rationality that you have no chance of ever living or being anything other than part of that system that you find so unconscionable. Yeah. And that's what, and what you just said about the NGOs being essentially capitalist enterprises is just basically um, a grand kind of dramatization of that yeah. problem. Yeah. And, and anyone who, who ever, you know, uh, thinks about capital and what it is or how it works knows that it works by critique. Right. That's, right. that's how it, it, it needs to progress and that's it it creates its own uh, critics uh one of them is called jordan peterson <laughs> i mean he's just the epitome of that right so we've been talking for quite some time now and i i no matter how game you are everyone's mind starts to you know uh atrophy over time and so uh you've been very kind enough to say we can go as long as we want uh which is wonderful so we don't need to rush off. I have just a few more questions. I just wanted to basically let you know that uh, I'm not going to hold you on uh, for a whole nother hour, but a few more questions if that's okay with you. Yeah. Is that okay? Or are we too long? Yeah. Are, are you, are you fried? No, it's no. only just beginning. So excellent. <laughs> excellent. Thank you. You did tell me time is giving. I would not so rudely keep someone so long, but you did give me carte blanche. So I'm just using that. So, um, okay, so we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered most of the topics that I, I planned to want to talk about. Now, uh, basically, there are just, I think, three more questions I want to ask you. Two of them come from um, my audience or kind of my, my ecosystem, let's say. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll get to those in a moment. But I think first we should just address the Nazi question. I'm sure that as a Heidegger scholar, someone who's quite interested in Heidegger and evidently one can tell quite sympathetic to, to Heidegger's philosophical ideas. I'm sure that you are 
often confronted with some raised eyebrows. Wasn't he, wasn't he a Nazi? How can you be interested in the, the thought of, of Martin Heidegger? What's your take on that? Not as often as you'd think, Okay, um, I guess. Um, it depends on where you are. I mean, it's certainly not, not uh, just speaking from the academic world, it's certainly not uh, a topic at most Heidegger conferences ever. Uh, it is, I, I have private students um, who teach Heidegger. They, they see it in the way that, you know, Wagner had some pretty terrible uh, views. I still enjoy his operas. I, Heidegger says about Wagner that Wagner is completely silly and awful. <laughs> um, but I, you know, that there's no way of, of responding to that in a way that, that satisfies everyone because I guess, I guess the, the ordinary answer would be, Oh, he, he was terrible, but let's, let's just blind that out. Uh, that was a period in his time. I think Heidegger is a fascinating thinker for uh, a variety of reasons. And one of them is that he's so modern, right? He gets sucked into that, um, into that most modern movements, one of the most expressions of, 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 of the 20th century, which is fascism. He becomes extremely... Taken almost by by Hitler himself, so he didn't. He never met him, and he didn't go to Berlin. I think he had received a call uh, to become a lecturer, professor in Berlin. He didn't go. I uh, wanted to stay where he was, uh, and he saw in it. When you think about it, this is 1933. He saw in it, I think, the possibility that an opening. In the history of being itself, he hadn't quite called it that yet, I think, at the time. He didn't speak of history of being. But it certainly, uh, he thought that he could use this movement for his own uh, creating philosopher kings, right? Having a proper university again. This is um, an enthusiasm. It was a moment of enthusiasm. I mean, that's probably what it was. I was I was not there. It's what people say who were there at the time. And he was very much uh, involved with it um, to the degree of, of, uh, of, of, of firing uh, Jewish um, members of staff, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm, as you can tell, I'm, I'm not very good in terms of actual historiography. Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in the thinking. But I think what there are two ways of, of thinking about it. You can go... You know, people talk a lot about the, the black notebooks. I haven't read them yet. Um, it's certainly not when it, when they came out. It was a huge media circus. Uh, and it's certainly not a thousand pages on the Jew. It, it's just not. It's They are mentioned a couple of times. Um, they're mentioned in a way that that's sometimes doesn't say much. And sometimes it's just standard uh standard anti-Semitic prejudices, just standard, you know, notions of uh worldlessness, etc. Um or on and then however there, there are the, the public talks that have been I think very often misinterpreted. And 19 and they are much more important, I think. Much more important. Because what we have to 
give Heidegger a bit of a benefit of the doubt, maybe. And that's in the Bremer Vorträge. So this is in Bremen, in Germany. Uh, right after the war, he gives a talk on, and this is appalling to many people, and I, I can see why. Uh, he says that there is no difference between technological or technical uh, production of crops and gas chambers. Now, that's appalling to people because it sounds like what he's saying is, what's the difference? It's all the same production. But what Heidegger is saying, look, this is why it's so terrible. That's how I understand. I think that what he's saying here is that the Holocaust or the gas chambers, etc., are so extremely gross, disgusting, and terrible because they produce bodies, dead bodies. They, they don't. And if we, t we started this conversation by talking about death as the unknown possibility. So the most authentic way of being is that you are allowed to die your death and only you can die your death. No one can die for you. That's why it's your own most possibility. Anything else, someone can represent you, someone can step in, someone can replace you, but not your death. You can only die your death. You cannot die for anyone else. You will die your death. And he says in these, in these uh, public talks, um, that, you know, do they die? Are they dying? Uh, he repeats that question a couple of times. And he says they're being, uh, translating now from, from, uh, from memory, they're being put down. Um, and then he just ends by saying a thing, they're being produced as bodies. So I, I understand that as saying they weren't even allowed to die. Mm. So what, what, for Heidegger, makes us human, which is our death, our mortality, not even that. That's the crime. The crime is that they were completely destroyed. And, and, and someone who thinks that Heidegger would be in favor of the Holocaust is completely out of his mind. Uh, because the Holocaust is that ultimate, exp that's where the will to will is visible. It's just a, a blind, raging will for nothing. It's just, what's the meaning of that? Right. And so, so it's, it's, so that's how I understand these public uh, uh, remarks. And, and that's how I've, I've thought about it so, okay. so far. And I've not, yeah. So your take is that he was just unfortunately swept away in a popular enthusiasm, but it wasn't very reflective of his deeper beliefs. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, there's a note in the Black Notebook somewhere where he says that this was the biggest mistake he ever made was to take on the rectorship. Oh, okay. There was, that he was completely that any everything within him what was was opposed to that um so that that's one of the remarks that i remember from from the discussion when they came out and so this, so then it, what was his what was the degree of his positive uh, uh, agreement or endorsement or participation would you I'm say not, I'm, I'm not an expert in this at all um and there are people who are you know proper historians and in that regard, but uh, I mean, it is also very strange when you, when you think of Heidegger as a nationalist because he isn't. I mean, one of the things he talks about in um, in the letter on humanism, at least, he's he's very very much opposed to nations. He's also opposed to, for example, the nationalization of language. 
um, for him, nationalizing a language like the German language is a destruction of that language. It, it destroys dialects, it, it eradicates vernacular. Um, so it's, it's very ambivalent. I think he was in, in favor of it insofar as he thought that this is the possibility for a return to uh, not a return, but but a, that there's an opening of history where all of a sudden the, 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 he, he could lead people towards he wanted where he wanted the world to go. And you could even think of his kind of his with, withdrawal and later on uh, as, as because he wanted to have an impact, obviously, right? There was something at stake in being in time. And that this is a moment of, of authenticity. This is a moment of possibility. You can finally, um, you know, Europe or for him, of course, Germany would reach itself again. And he, he does have these moments where he says, you know, you can only philosophize in, in German and, and, and Greek. Uh, and, and people will always interpret that as saying, oh, this is you know, extremely racist or something. I don't particularly think that it is. Uh, but I, I'm, I mean, there are people you can talk to about this, like Richard Polt. They, they probably know more about this. Uh, I think he saw an opening. I think he, he was uh, following that possibility and then stepped down, saw the destruction it would bring. And I uh, certainly maybe also perhaps blamed himself a bit, uh, but I would, I would never think that from anything I've read so far that he would be in favor of, of, a, of an industrial level destruction of human life. That, that's that not, not, nothing that I've read so far. Okay, so he was anti-Semitic in the way that was fairly average at the time. He was not especially devoted or passionately committed to the Nazi cause. He unfortunately was swept away in the enthusiasm. He did participate. He did kind of uh, make that mistake. But you, yeah. you do see it as a kind of a mistaken a, a mistake that that it was a kind of uh, people tend to make mistakes, right? I mean, right, of course, right. Them. I'm just clarifying how how you see it in relation to the philosophies, because some people would say that there are uh, deep aspects of his philosophical perspective that lean yeah. him towards. But you would have to quote one of those. What's that? But you you would have to refer to one of those. Well, I'm not actually familiar enough with the argument, other than knowing that it's a popular refrain, right? So I was just curious, but you don't buy that, really. You don't think that anything about his philosophy in any kind of deep way lends itself or or disposes someone towards fascism or Nazism. You don't think that? Do you? Well, I <laughs> know I don't. I've never gotten that impression from my reading of him, and um, I'm quite sympathetic to what the message I'm getting from you. I think if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, that in fact Heidegger was perhaps more than anyone deeply horrified at the at the prospects of kind of mass industrialized carnage of, of, of all kinds that, that, that he was precisely uh, quite, quite concerned about and, 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 and against. Um, so, so yeah, I, that, that critique never, I, I never quite understood the critique other than I just wanted to, you know, ask, ask you uh, what you thought about it. 
Yeah, I, 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 I guess I would agree with that. I mean, there are disturbing uh, passages in the Black Notebooks, obviously. Uh, and okay. uh, uh, to be honest, just to, to let's, I should try to kind of steel man the argument. I feel like maybe I'm not doing it justice. I mean, I guess being more sympathetic to this critique, just to give a strong version of the argument for you to to respond to, and then we can move on. It's that it's precisely stuff like a return of God, a kind of openness to um, some kind of uh, opening of, of, of authenticity. Uh, these types of terms nowadays, whenever you start even talking like these terms, people, con- contemporary kind of secular modern people, they, they feel icky about it. They feel like, oh yeah, if you believe in things like this, if you think that the structure of being can, can open up to you in rare glimpses of, of insight and unconcealment, and you talk about an openness to a return from, from God and these t- sorts of things that makes you uh, the type of person who is going to support the next charismatic dictator who, who says that he's here to save us. So that would be the link. I think people see, people do think that there's a functional link between a kind of Heideggerian uh, perspective in the way that I just articulated and a kind of uh, likelihood of, of, of being duped by charismatic genocidal dictators. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think about that. I don't care about that. Okay. Uh, and also, uh, I mean, if, if so-called atheistic uh, rationalists will live very comfortable lives uh, in urban centers, maybe they are very prone to supporting faceless technocratic entities that are completely void of meaning. I mean, you know, um, you can always make, any, make up any link. Uh, Heidegger says that, therefore he, he's, he's this. Uh, if, if, I mean, the only thing really that, that would be interesting is if, if the black notebooks had actually, had actually been as terrible as people had, had made them out to be. And it's, it's not like also this kind of, this, this argument that all of, all of philosophy is, um, you know, you can, you can read many things in many ways, but also to say that, that, that it's infected. I mean, it's it's such a strange way of, of of addressing how thinking works. It's thinking is not us. Like if if that's if you don't accept that and you cannot, you should not, you should not even be know the know, name Heidegger. Thinking is not the act of a subject that somehow is self-referential and has images uh, in his mind, etc., and and then tries to rationally make sense of it. Well, thinking is not detached from us, but comes to the human being. So, um, and, and if, if someone would deny that there is even, you know, yes, there is an opening, but there's also an opening for, uh, so that if, if someone believes that there are openings in history, that doesn't mean that you automatically follow a charismatic. Why, why would that follow? I don't even understand that. Why would that follow? Mm. Okay. Thank you for thank you for responding to that. Yeah, how would that follow? What's that? How would, I, I want to understand that. How would that follow? Oh well, to be clear, again, I, I don't subscribe to this fear, but um, again, trying to steel man it. I guess the idea is that it if it makes you kind of gullible would would kind of be the idea. Like if you if you believe in these somewhat mystical sounding possibilities on the horizon, then you you you're you might just be more liable than the next guy to be duped by the person who 
kind of pretends to occupy this kind of messiah role. Whereas, you know, if you just don't believe in any possibilities of history ever opening up anything interesting, somehow that's supposed to be like a healthier uh, or like more uh, enlightened perspective. If you're just radically closed off to the possibility of life or society ever being different than it is now in kind of oppressed homogenous time, then the good thing about that is you'll never get duped by the next Hitler. That's the, that's the thinking. Well, but it doesn't, it doesn't end war or senseless destruction as we are, you know, very, I'm sorry, war is very much a reality for most people and we have outsourced it. There was a time when we were during the Bush years, we were at least honest about it because we still watched it on the news during the Obama years, which is completely hidden and concealed with right. the drone wars and the most illegal wars ever waged by uh, an elected president. Um, so, and I mean, there, there is a state of, 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 of total war now. It's just that this war is just completely meaningless. The U.S. is a crumbling empire that's still in Afghanistan. Most people probably don't even remember that. And um, so maybe they weren't gullible uh, to some genocidal dictator, but that doesn't change the fact that war is a reality. It's just that now it's completely void of any, any meaning. Right. Okay. So, Johannes, just two more questions, and then you're free. Um, and don't feel obligated to give extremely uh, impressive answers to these questions, as impressive as the previous answers you've given. Uh, feel free to take them a little bit more rapid fire if if you're feeling a bit uh, taxed at this point in the conversation. And these questions come from Anthony Morley. And I thought they were very good questions myself also, so that's why I'm, I'm keen to ask them. The, the first is, to what degree do you see Heidegger's philosophy as a Catholic philosophy? Oh, um, never, never really thought about that. Why, why would it be Catholic? Uh, I think Anthony said something about how he, he was, he, Heidegger was flirting with, um, Jesuit training. Is that wrong? No, he, he was in a, yeah, he was supposed to become a priest, I think. Yeah. Right. So, and then there, I, I think there was an allusion to, uh, the significance of Aristotle and Aquinas in, in, Heidegger. That's a question though. I'm, I'm asking, is, is there, is there much there or no, in your view? To Aristotle and Aquinas. The, the, that being the Catholic connection, in other words. You might not Catholic? Well, right. So, so in, in, in Catholic thought, uh, Aristotle and Aquinas loom large, uh, obviously. And so the question that I received from Anthony was, is there, is there an interesting or, or significant kind of, uh, Catholic thread via Aristotle and Aquinas in Heidegger's philosophy or not? I mean, your answer might just be, uh, you don't think so, or, or you're not aware. I don't know. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how to, I mean, th- those questions are, you know why I don't like these questions is mm-hmm. because they are these typical, do you think that Nietzsche was influenced by this guy? That's not how history works. I mean, first of all, you have to tell me what Catholic means. Then, you know, and then, uh, <laughs> Heidegger grew up Catholic. He, he grew up next to the church. Uh, his, his father worked at the church. Um, so yes, he's Catholic. He's Catholic in that very uh, Badische sense, in the Swabian sense that he was, that he grew up in. Uh, and certainly you could say also that the philosophical uh, standpoint is that some, some of his understanding of being is mediated by the scholastics. So here you have the Aquinas part. 
Uh, and then he's, uh, he's he told his students, you don't need to read me if you haven't read uh, Aristotle for at least five years. Um, so, and, and Aristotle is where <clears throat> Heidegger, uh, Heidegger is someone who Heidegger is, is wrestling with. But if, I mean, if, if you say Catholic, if you, if you mean by Aquinas, you know, is Catholic, but there is no Protestantism at the time. Uh, so if Catholic just means that Heidegger believes in a creator God, no. Uh, if, if, uh, I mean, if, if there are inf whether there are influences, certainly there are because he grew up Catholic. Uh, does he believe? Is he a, a practicing Catholic? He goes to church, I guess, every Sunday. He did, uh, but I don't think that, that he believed much in it. Um, but I think the the question would have to be more precise in the sense that it would have to point to how, for example, the history of being, which is something we haven't talked about yet. Um, how how that has to do uh, with Catholicism, or for example, with how the Church uh, interpreted being to a certain degree, right? And if then you could say, for example, that that there was an understanding of being that everything everything was created, and for Heidegger, the Creator God um, is. One of the one of the aspects that factors into us becoming uh, creators or, or or trying to become creator gods ourselves. Um, so I don't, that's probably not a very satisfying answer to some. No, that's great. That's fine. Yeah, I appreciate that. And actually, the last question was a, also a kind of influence or genealogy question. So since you reject those questions, I think I'll spare you of the last question. Okay. Any more? What's that? Hey, I mean, I'm, I can still go. I don't care. Okay, if you insist, I'll give you the last one. So the last one is just this. What do you think about post-Heideggerian proje uh, projects, in particular the, the Heideggerian strands of French theory after Heidegger, so deconstruction, yeah. Derrida, and in particular the, 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 the image people have nowadays of French postmodern philosophy, do you, and 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 let's say in particular, it, it's it's image of you know being highly relativistic, uh, representing the kind of uh, rejection of meta, meta narratives and this this type these types of mo motifs that are associated with French postmodernism. To what degree? Uh, is Heidegger responsible for that, or is that a, is that a, a bad perversion of the Heideggerian <laughs> outlook? Yeah, it, I mean, you, 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 I guess no one can control uh, where or how their thoughts are being uh, received. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the the Heidegger that most not most people, but many people know, is the Heidegger of French philosophy. So it's the the Heidegger in in the public mind is um, is somewhat someone who who criticizes presence. We we have to think about absence. That's Derrida, um, and it, it's and then his you know the, the main problem with with the so the the French you know their language was extremely nationalized. They've almost lost all of their 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 dialects, and then Heidegger comes along and there's someone who speaks in a way that's 
completely outrageous. And, and that's very liberating, I think, maybe for a French reader. And they're quite drawn to him. And what, uh, however, you know, when, when Heidegger speaks of science Geschichte, Geschichte, as he makes clear already in Being in Time, is not Historie. So there is in the Romantic language of French, and there is not in, in English either, there's no translation for the word Geschichte. History does not quite capture it. History is Historie in German, and that's sort of, I think when I say history, you might think of something like something that's, that's written, that, that can be data, that's in the past. And I think that that's to a certain degree how, how Foucault, even though I'm not too familiar with that, would understand Heidegger as just giving genealogies, as just, you know, looking, looking up a word in the dictionary. Oh, this is what it meant 500 years ago. Close the dictionary and then say we need to return to this meeting. Um, or uh, Anwesen, right? Usia, Sein, which is translated as presence, présence, is Heidegger says there is also withdrawal, and that's absence in English. And, and I don't know the French, maybe it's absence, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 and, and, and then the Derrida in Heidegger is the Heidegger who, who focuses on absence, and that is not quite accurate. I think that the, the there's but it, it's not you know it's not about they, they misunderstood him or they, they got him wrong it's just that there are problems in translation mm. and they don't tra they literally don't translate there, there are ways of thinking that you cannot translate how this is why you cannot translate the word logos mm. the big why because because it, it doesn't mean much anymore when you've translated it um so a, a way of of and, and postmodern philosophy i think one of the other questions that was in there is is how whether heidegger is responsible for the the relativism yeah that's the expression anyway i mean I, I'm, it's it's a very cartoonish kind of view of postmodern french philosophy but yeah the yeah uh, the the relativism that's associated with postmodernism um that that's not very heideggerian is that right um, yeah, and, and Heidegger, on, on top of it, I would think is just not a moral thinker. Mm. I I just don't find anything in there where you could. I mean, he there are texts that I that I haven't read where he does talk about the diabolical, etc. So it, th those categories come back when he gets older, or more epistemological relativism, you could say. I guess people are kind of confused by the line that goes, particularly through Derrida. It, it is kind of a weird transformation of, of, a, of a Heideggerian kind of intellectual drive that gets filtered through Derrida. And then all of a sudden people are able to kind of think, oh, there is no truth. There is no single text. There is, you know, this, this kind of idea oh, uh, with, yeah. a, with, with a, with a weirdly kind of Heideggerian kind of flavor to it. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think of that. Well, yeah. I mean, Heidegger is all about truth. Uh, right. It's all about trying to understand truth in a way that is not typically epistemological, which is correspondence truth, mm -hmm. uh, and not um, and not absolute truth either. So, truth as Aletheia is foundational to his to his thinking. You cannot make sense of his thought without thinking 
without accepting truth that that's what drives it right 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 and and the the that there is no i mean maybe there is no one text for heidegger either but there is certainly uh, a way of 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 making sense of of the history of being that then only becomes visible thanks to heidegger which and you know which is sort of uh which heidegger sees as necessary to think through these fundamental texts and not deconstructing them and saying that they're you know they're just artificial constructs they all articulate something very real and something historical but the the place we're in now uh is that all we do is we go back and, and say aristotle is wrong because science has shown us this or we go back and, and argue about minor details and this goes on forever and ever and ever it doesn't really seem to say much anymore and right. for heidegger that's a sign that metaphysics has come to an end so in that regard, Derrida and Heidegger sort of overlap, right? But it's just the the conclusion that they draw is different. Because I think for someone like Derrida, I don't want to do any injustice to him or anyone who reads him, that's a triumphant moment, or isn't it? It's something that that finally, you know, any, anything goes. Uh, we don't need logos anymore. And Heidegger says, no, this is where well, actually we have to be very careful because now we have to think through that history again and think through what it has forgotten. Mm. Dude, Johannes, this was awesome. Seriously. This was really amazing. I'm not kidding. A few more than one person in the chat said that they thought this was possibly the best live stream I've ever done. So thank you so much, man. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you for that. Can I just uh, say um, it was a great pleasure meeting you in London. Oh, thanks. I hope that I'll let you back in. And uh, <laughs> one day. Come meet. Um, and it would be great if uh, people could subscribe to my my YouTube channel. There's there's more on that. I think you've yeah. It's in the comment or something. That's uh, right. and I, have, I don't have Twitter. I think I'm not quite sure if I have it, but I have Instagram, so people can follow me there too. Great. And I'm trying to make more videos. I'm, I'm working on a book. And if anyone's interested in Heidegger, really on a, on a on some level, I teach Heidegger. I teach it privately. Just reach out to me. That would be great. And yes, thank you all so much uh, for listening. And thank you, Justin. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to have you on. Maybe we can do it again sometime. I was also going to um, encourage my listeners, anyone out there, definitely check out Johannes's stuff. Um, I think he's just, Johannes has really just started yeah. make, uh, making stuff on the internet. But um, I think as you saw in this talk, he's the real deal and re has really, really interesting takes that I think are really well aligned with my perspective and the types of themes that I know you all are interested in because you're here. So yeah, definitely check out Johannes's stuff. And uh, like Johannes was saying, he does private tutoring. So if you're interested in that, check it out. But also I'm sure Johannes would be happy to just chat briefly. If yeah. you want to send questions or comments or, or talking points to Johannes, I'm sure he would kindly interact with, with any of you. If any of you want to follow up on any of these ideas, shoot him a text, shoot him a message on Instagram or uh, check out his YouTube, subscribe to his YouTube subscribe to all of his stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Johannes, I hope that I really hope you start uh, making more videos uh, along these lines. Cause I think your, 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 your knowledge and familiarity with Heidegger and other philosophies, obviously um, uh, top notch, but, but more specifically just the, the, the style of your perspective, the, the particular way that you see things I think is not only really useful and uh, illuminating useful is a, a sort of an insult uh, at this point. I, I, it's not the right word that I was looking for. Uh, I, I wouldn't reduce it to being useful, but 
your 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 understanding is not just uh, highly familiar and convincing and compelling, but it uh, it immediately produces uh, illuminating and emboldening and uh, to use a somewhat corny word, but at least better than useful. Uh, a kind of I find it very empowering the the perspective that you have on Heidegger, the way that you kind of uh, can extract really um, you know insights that that unlock other puzzles in the minds of people who are thinking about contemporary society and contemporary technology in the ways that I am and 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 the way that we do in kind of my little community here. So yeah, man, I, I can't endorse you enough. And uh, I think in the future when people ask me, you know, why is Heidegger interesting or why should anyone care or why you know. Um, or wasn't he a Nazi? Uh, how dare you be interested in him? I think this live stream and then when it goes to the podcast will be, I think it will become one of the uh, best places someone could possibly go to basically learn all about that in less than three hours. So thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a very great conversation. Last time, just to mention this, we talked, I think, for eight hours. <laughs> we did. We did. Yeah. And, uh, it's uh, it, it's it's very strange when when these things happen, right? Uh, but it's very wonderful always, and, and maybe at some point we can talk about the history of being because that's that's just uh, fundamentally important, I think. Excellent. I'll put it in my notes as a possible topic for a round two sometime in the future. But uh, right. and yeah, as you make if if you start to make more videos and stuff like that on the internet, definitely send them my way, and um, yeah. I, I definitely would like to see you yeah. make all kinds of stuff. Uh, to the to this effect, and I, I support that definitely. There's actually a video I made with a professor I know in in Italy. Uh, it's going to be in English. Okay. Um, it will come out next Saturday. Um, so it's on Heidegger on technology. Uh, okay. And yeah, that'll be very very uh, very concise and, and and very good for people to really want to know more specifically on technology and Heidegger. Excellent. All right. Well, once again, just thanks so much. This was really epic. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I'll be in touch with you, Johannes, for sure. Cheers. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.